Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radio Free Golgotha. We're delighted to be back on our occasional podcast. Uh, hi, Jesse. How are you doing? Hi, Al. I, yeah, I'm tired of summer. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait to be. What's the meme that was kicking around? I was like, humoral theory is everywhere. I can't wait to be cold and sad in a couple of months. Being hot and sad is just not it. Our skins know there is enough heat. Sometimes there is like a certain quality in the air, though, that you can tell it's early fall is trying. So that's nice. The occasional rain and thunderstorms and spooky season is almost here. And by the time this airs, this airs all the different mouths I could make to mean different words. I do think that September 1st, or at least Labor Day, is the, the start of the true advent, as it were. Yeah, uh, I don't think we really mark Labor Day terribly in, in the UK. I know there's something about wearing white around then, but as a, a turn in the secular year, it's, it's interesting in the United States. Well, that's because you've got us to do all your labor for you. There we go. We are delighted to be coming to you talking about a host of themes again. Uh, very excited to, to run down those with you. We're hoping to celebrate the Virgin Dagla. Uh, we're also hoping to I don't know, celebrate the uh, plum depths of Leviathan as our, our demon of the, of the episode. Hopefully also we're wrenching out from not just talking about minerals to metals, which after all, I guess, are still a kind of mineral sometimes, or, or an element at least. Uh, we're talking about silver, hopefully. We're going to uh, uh, celebrate uh, aloe, the, 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 the plant. Hello. Hopefully we'll get Hi, arrow card <laughs> straight to the castle. Uh, we'll hopefully touch on the geomantic figure of uh, Fortuna Minor and its counterparted uh, Odu Uruz. Uh, and we may even touch upon not exactly a dead magician, but also not quite ever a live magician, uh, Prospero of uh, Billy Shakespeare's Tempest. And finally, hopefully, if we get a chance, we will uh, speculate wildly around the theme of demon magic uh, in general. Uh, that's our kind of roadmap here. And as is kind of traditional, we like to off the reason for the season, which in this case is the patron saints of the namesake town in the front of the Bay of uh, Virgin de Regla. I know this one was uh, uh, one you were excited to, uh, to get into, Jesse. Do you want to kick us off? Sure. Why not? I think as far as we do that, I think it's a, there's a lot of interesting things coming with this particular figure because we're talking not only about a Marian apparition, a Spanish Marian apparition that is then somehow carried over into, as many are, into the New World, or at least that a New World Marian apparition is then paired with an Old World Marian apparition to give it validity and continuity. The point, and we talked about this too, of I think for those that are curious, uh, it has been remarked sometimes that we don't necessarily tell too much about the saint we're talking about. And that might be the case today because there's a lot of interesting things around the saint. So I invite you to go to Liber Wiki and other places to, to read more. But that there is this transference that happens. That's, it's not unlike the book of Cyprian, the Cyprianios that like have this claim in old world authority in order for people in the new world have access to these traditions in some legitimizing way, which is interesting because you get the same thing with like Guadalupe is not the name that the Virgin Guadalupe gave when she came. That's the Virgin that she was associated with because the G sound doesn't exist in Napa. 
But when we're looking at something like the version of the rule, we're talking about now a version that is so intrinsically tied to the harbor of Havana, to the area of Regla, to the worship of the Orisha Yemaya, who she is syncretized with, the Yoruba deity of the Ogun River that then in the diaspora, both in Brazil and in Cuba, also became a patroness of the oceans and is the universal mother, the one who never rejects. But that syncretism happens, and, and we can also see how it's somewhat um, designed in some way. And so the, the Virgen de Negla that is Spanish has a very specific history, but I'm very curious. There was an article in the, uh, the Hemispheric Institute, uh, if you're not familiar, uh, but Kerry uh, Viernes uh, out of UCLA wrote this article about all roads lead to Yemaya. And I like this phrasing that she gives of voting with the feet that the Cubans are voting with their feet by reclaiming the sacred spaces of the church through pilgrimage. And this is a wonderful concept in talking about pilgrimage and procession of why a saint is paraded around the town. It does have a relationship, of course, to the dominance of the church and the profession of faith. But there is something to, for those that are participating in this, a way of remapping the landscape, of making sure that everyone can see the most important relics or statues to it so that the Virgin can see everyone that's supposed to come to her that she might not have seen because they've been too sick or they've been absent from the church or other things. So this idea of procession and what that means is kind of like a, an interesting internal pilgrimage that is there. And I, that the whole ideas that come with pilgrimage of, what's that quote? Uh, pilgrimage starts when you leave the holy place. It's the return home. It's what you bring home with you that is so fascinating about pilgrimage because all pilgrimages are difficult and terrible, right? They're not fun experiences in the same way that building up to a holy day, the rehearsals that go into something that for something that might only last a few minutes, let alone a, a few hours of procession around. But that the Spanish virgin to go where we all started, I suppose, we're talking about commissioned by Augustine originally is the, is the, the pseudo mythic, the poeto mythic history and carried by San Cipriano. One San Cipriano, uh, some say he's a deacon, some say he's a bishop, some say it's the self-same Cipriano that, that carried it. And that's, of course, just conflation and wonderful. And that's that blurred hagiography that we love so much. So the idea that uh, the statue itself is taken to Spain and is uh, has a fig tree, excuse me, and a cistern associated with it um, is buried for basically 500 years by this cistern and this and the fig tree, the self-same fig tree, of course. It's not an offspring. Of course, it's an offspring, but this is a very common theme in in uh, Spain, especially amongst the, the holy sites who were, who were much like the Germanic Europeans were worshiping trees in many ways. So this idea of the fig tree that comes forth and the fig is already a very spotted, colorful member of Christendom, right? This is the tree that's associated with Judas's hanging, and it's the tree that was cursed by Jesus in the Gospels. So the cistern and the fig tree are there. The fig tree, and we're talking about the Garden of Eden references for some people. But it wasn't an apple, it was a fig. So this association of the fig is quite interesting that it's with the version of the rule, the regla itself. So in time, she gets a little uh, antsy and tells people where she's buried. And there's, she's dug up. And it's interesting because there's different versions of this statue, right? So there's later ones or there's casings that are put over the original statue that you can see. So looking at Andalusian versions, there's nothing that specific about her, but like many French versions, she is a Black Madonna. And this is also interesting. This is not one like where Montserrat claims to be from the smoke of the candles. In this case, we can see that she is designed to be dark. She is a, 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 a morena, we would say in Spanish. But the Virgin of Regla in Cuban society is associated with uh, blackness and associated with being a Black Madonna. 
so I the specific histories again of what it is uh, in Europe, other than that the, the the feast has a history of being celebrated, of course. September 8th itself as a birthday of Mary, one of the birthdays of Mary, natal birthdays, is a uh, common Marian feast. And this statue has an association with that feast day. In typical Catholic blur, the Eve is celebrated very heavily because the Catholic day starts like, you know, sundown the day before in, in this kind of weird blur with different timekeeping systems and still relying on a Judaic inheritance and other things going on. But the eve of the feast is when the feast starts. So the seventh is the start of the feast. And then by extension, now we celebrate on the seventh, but people start celebrating on the sixth. The older Havanese, the older people are the, in, in Regla, which is across the little bay from Havana, is uh, celebrates on the eighth. The Cabildo of the Virgin de Regla celebrates on the eighth is when they dress the statue of the Virgin and are parading it around the town. And in this expression is where you find perhaps the most conflation with the most evidence of a syncretic belief of the Virgen de Regla of Cuba with the Orisha Yemaya. So there's this painting that is worshipped in Havana, the statue that is made that is not the original statue, but there's lore about all these things. The painting is floating, the statue is floating, someone else found it. And these things get codified in various ways because of the church's insistence to try and write a material history that justifies why people are faithful. So all stories seem to be listened to, but there's conflicting reports, both oral tradition and written tradition, of what exactly it is that we're talking about when we talk about the Virgin of Regla, the Virgen de Regla, and especially, what is the phrase that I like that you say, I was like, you can't hear all the arguments over the fact of practice that's happening here. There is something very interesting being done where the Cabildo system in Cuba is its own complex thing, and it's important to the history of the Orisha traditions of Cuba to understand them, to research them. There is that, uh, I think the book, uh, Prieto Yoruba Kingship and Colonial Cuba During the Age of Revolutions, which really goes into, it's by Lovejoy, Henry Lovejoy. That book goes really heavily into the formation of the Cabildos and how these things work, that there were societies of, of free Africans that would maintain a, uh, a corporation, basically. It was for, usually along the ethnic uh, lines, the various ethnic groups that were enslaved and brought in would form different cabildos and a typical to Catholic fashion, a patron saint must be chosen. Now, the thing with Orisha tradition, the thing with many traditions around the world is that cities have patron deities. Cities have centers of worship that are more dedicated to some deities than others. It doesn't mean they don't believe in others, especially in this polytheistic or at least monistic polytheism blur that's happening. But the, the different cabildos, the famous ones are where we get these saint lists, where we get these syncretism ideas that the cabildo was actually, it was not a front for Shango at, at, at once. They were considered the same thing. They had to pick a patron saint. They picked one dressed in red that had a castle and a sword. You know, the, what's the history behind that? But the, and then the, the Virgen, the Carmel, right? The Virgin of Mount Carmel is another famous cabildo. Then you have the, the cabildo of the Virgen de Regla. And this is when we go from the silver tones or the brass tones that you might see on some of the earlier examples of the statues to now everyone's dressing her in silver because the Orisha Yemaya takes white metals or draping her in blue and white because these are the colors associated in Cuba of different tones of blue, of crystal, of white with the Orisha Yemaya. So, you know, quick background there of Orisha being the, the various fragments of divinity that are interacted with to assist our Ori to uh, complete what it is that we came to do. They are the selected heads. They are the 
elevated ancestors that are evidence of the divine in the world and are therefore also tied to forces in nature. Uh, so you might have a Rodisha that is freshwater and rivers. You might have all rivers, of course, are our, our deities, but that the Orisha creativity might give himself, uh, make himself known in the world and their actions known in the world through the people that are their quote unquote children, the people who are representatives of a certain ashe in the world. And we can see these exemplars as being a collective building or a communal acknowledgement of what those traits are recognized both communally and formally through uh, various tri- uh, religious tendencies. It's hard to say it's not a centralized faith and it starts to exhibit some of those tendencies as things go on. But the point with all of this is that Orisha are, I, I hesitate to say deity or God, but these are better translations than most. I do not consider them spirits in the same parlance that we would normally have used on this podcast. And they certainly think themselves more godlike. They're also possessory. It's a possession-based tradition. Um, and including heavy divination. And the divination is one that we talk about on this program a lot. So it's interesting that I think we kind of tapped into a little bit with Inle, Inle the Orisha on the St. Raphael episode, but we rarely talk about the Orisha themselves. But I thought this was an interesting opportunity to embrace the kind of huge themes that come here with the Virgen de Arregla on this specific feast day, which starts off a whole cycle of feasts because you start with the Virgen de Arregla on the seventh, on the eve, and the eighth is when the big day happens. Even in hurricanes, they still did it, right? Like there's horrible weather two or three years ago, and they still made sure on the eighth to do it. And then the eighth proper, being Mary's birthday, is also another very taste. But the eighth through the twelfth starts La Virgen, uh, the Caridad de Pobre, the Virgin of the Charity of Copper, who is associated with Oshun. So you get the, the main water deities, the two waters, are being invoked through their Catholic mast. And so it, I think it just gives an op- interesting opportunity to discuss notions of syncretism and what that is. The syncretism is often approached in the modern magical world as being a choice. It can be. That's more of a conflation and uh, a correlation when it's done by choice. But syncretism itself is a dominant force exerting itself on a lesser dominant force. And in true to form in the Catholic world, this is something that I think is worth examining always is the difference between the damage, the internal Christianization that happens in countries uh, to their traditions, perhaps. I'm trying to put it that way rather than like, what's the difference between Catholic worldview magic and Protestant worldview magic? There is decided differences. And you can tell magical thinkers, in my opinion, through a conversation, you can tell which system they grew up within and have internalized. And that side of it is interesting. So I think a lot of times in the modern British inherited Protestantism, these things become very intellectual exercises, syncretism, where in the Catholic world, everything exists. Everything exists in the Catholic world. It's all a Catholic world. We can't fight the mother church. We can't fight the cosmology. So if something works, at least, and I'm speaking, you can tell I'm coming from the Chicano, the Mexican background coming out of me, like if it works, it's a saint. If it doesn't work, it's something else. Maybe it'll be a saint tomorrow, but it's not today. So just has to decide. So there's something I think with the idea here that all things exist. Uh, and if they exist, then God must want them to exist in some form, or we have to work to better them through that. That to say that these syncretism notions, that the, the, the syncretism between La Virgen de Regla and Yemaya happen, and then they're enforced through the, the creolization, through the offspring of these people that have a devotion to both. And a lot of the people that, yes, are Orisha priests, they have Yemaya as their uh, a deity, their Arisha, that they are working with, that they are devoted to, that it's hard to say working with. It doesn't mean, it makes more sense than some 
when you're talking in Spanish and you're about this idea of hacer santo, to do saint, to do the saint, to make the saint. A santero is someone who makes saints. It used to be referred to as someone as who carves statues. But in, in Cuba, in the Caribbean, becomes those people that work saints over God, meaning deities that are syncretized with saints over the God of the church, who is often syncretized with the one unifying force of God. Or at least that's what it became in, in, in Creole Cuba. So you have like Orogumare, Orofin, the king, Olorun, the sun, the the owner of the sky, all conflated with the Christian trinity. And then you have the saints themselves as being the ones that can interact with us as intermediaries. And the Orisha themselves are having been living, lived human lives as continuing to come into the world are more interactable with. We have a, they have an influence that we do not, and they have a power that we do not. So we're trying to become like them. So there is a, is the syncretism of the La Virgen de Regla is it something in the statue? Is it a, a feast association? Is it something like common associations of like, say, Christopher is celebrated as the Orisha uh, Agayu in Cuba in common Cuban prescriptions? These aren't the only ones. And that's one of the things you see on the internet is people correcting others. And like, there could be like 14 saints. And oftentimes it was a private devotion or one group that had a devotion to a uh, Orisha and chose a saint. And like, they become very personal after a while. And they get very perpetuated in the new world. But the ones that we know are the ones that were commonly processed this voting with the feet that kind of makes the presence of the Orisha known through its saintly procession. These are the ones that we know for sure. La Virgen de Regla is one of the primary ones. And just as La Virgen de Calidad de Pobre, the, the Virgin of the Charity of Copper that is syncretized with Ochun, Ochun, that we know that this is Yemaya. When we see it in Cuba, this is Yemaya. Even if you are Catholic, it is too hard to differentiate between the two. My own elders in the tradition adored the, the Yemaya priests. There was no separation for them. And that notion rarely happens. And it's happening less with people who come to the tradition outside of the kind of Afro-Cuban, Afro-Catholic traditions uh, uh, and upbringing that are there. People who are coming to the tradition secondarily often emphasize the feast days as part of a cyclical round, as part of a seasonal round that you can engage with. It's interesting because these feast days don't necessarily correlate with any seasonal patterns. Just remind me that I didn't finish the Agayu thing. The Agayu is associated with San Cristobal, with St. Christopher, but is not celebrated on the normal feast day, the quote-unquote normal feast day, but is celebrated on November 16th. Why? Because I believe this is the day that Cristobal Columbus came into the harbor of Havana, and his name is Christopher. So Christopher of Havana is November 16th. And this is the fiesta de Agayu. But there's that conflation back and forth. So I think syncretism is such an interesting thing to explore because it does confuse. It confuses the people that are involved with it let alone outsiders. And it's not ignorance. It's not deception, except when it is either of those. It's hard. It's, it's just hard to, I'm a random thing here. And I'm not sure how much it's tied to La Virgen. <laughs> no, this is, well, I mean, it's necessary context, I think. Even if people are nodding along like, yeah, I know, I know. No, I think you, you raised some really awesome points. So I was excited to to dig into a little deeper, I think this concept of Japan is explicating it of the Kabilios and the attendant traditions, kind of showing that this these syncretisms, these masking, and again, those aren't interchangeable terms at all, but the, those kinds of practices aren't just about statues and iconography and who you're using to talk to whoever. Although obviously those may be a focus, and like the, the regla is, is, is a great example of that with all these attendant myths of the of the various icons being found and lost and things, which itself is, is fascinating to me as like a saint has to do miracles, right? That's how you know it's got power and is worth spending candles on and things. 
but sometimes the miracle is the saint being like, I'm buried here, go and find me again. I want to come back. Uh, but yeah. but the, the idea that like this, this syncretism isn't just about the iconography, although, you know, that's often, let's say, incredibly personal. It's based in these sodalities are actually like engaging with it. There's that this, these practices of masking and syncretism are about organization and the community around these kind of centers of lived space and kind of spiritual engagement. That's why the processions are important. That's why these mutual aid societies, social club, like these kinds of concepts we can use to try and approach these sodalities are so interesting, I think. And so, so important that it's about, it's not just about armchairing your theology. It's about like getting up and the, the crack of dawn and building that, you know, awesome raft and laying it full of, you know, watermelons and, and, and champagne and, and pushing it out into the sea, right? Yeah. Or, or whatever it is they're doing. I find the idea of this lived faith and this spiritual engagement really present in what you're saying about making the saint, making the Arisha in the world. Like yeah. the idea of, of worship as like instantiating the blessings of that Arisha. That like the example you use frequently is like, you are making Yamaya when you mop the floor, like you are bringing yeah. down the blessings of water and cleanliness and things. I think and that's like, in uh, Maturi, uh, where he, they see that, where they talk to the priestess and like talk to specifically about like, we don't worship here. We make, we do. Yamaya every time we're interacting with water. And then of course we get the fella Kutisango, water no get enemy, right? Like doesn't matter what water does to you in your life, you must always come back to water. If you if you're if your baby drowns in water, you still have to drink water. You know, if the river carries your laundry away, you still have to wash your clothes in water again. Like water doesn't have enemies. And it's the, there's that, you know, Felakuti aside and the Matri quote aside, the re-substantiation, the reification of something like a deity that is made brings up points of like Vajrayana theory, right? Of like the deity is present when you're actually worshiping the deity, but at other times, does it matter? Like the idea that like during the procession, which has as many as like 80,000 people participating in it, like worldwide, like um, in various forms or uh, in different places, that people in Havana were regla, there's reglas across the little straight little bay, right? There's the lanchita that goes between the two, the ferry, but that they're carrying dolls dressed in red and uh, in black, blue and white, that are possibly Yamaya, possibly dead ancestors that were children of Yamaya, possibly dead ancestors that just worshipped Yamaya and understood, but also Yamaya as this metaphor for the thing that survived across the Mafa, across this ocean, and Yamaya being felt to be an inheritance of blackness, of that, of the pro-blackness of Yamaya, the pro-blackness of the tradition, that this is something other, and that when you are processing La Virgen de Regla through the streets on the 7th and 8th, that people carrying these dolls are also participating. They are helping to make Yamaya. They are voting with their feet. This is beautiful. And the, the, the same thing happens by sell. This is this brings up concepts within traditional craft of like stealing the power. I'm not suggesting that here, but like what is the thing of like if a bunch of people are meeting somewhere, it's the whole thing of like circumnavigating the church three times or seven times or 21 times counterclockwise so that you can steal the mass that way. And that type of thing. We're talking about a bunch of people doing something that makes the sacred. They're engaging, not just worship shouldn't just be this one-way relationship, but that certainly in this, definitely in an uh, Afro and indigenous mindset of creating the sacred through this, that the practice of the pilgrimage helps reify Yemaya's presence in the land and the reality of Yemaya through the Vietnam Regla, that participating in some way is what's going on. The pilgrimage is, even if it's internal, with just the statue and this image and your personal image, reminding of like how many people are carrying statues of, of La Muerte or, 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 and on their knees to a church, to a La Muerte church. You know, which one is the real La Muerte? Will it please stand up? It doesn't have to. They're all her. 
It's, it erases this notion of singularity that is quite fascinating to me on the performance end, right? On the performance studies, because uh, I am a theorist and that is what I do. <laughs> I feel like worshipful action and maybe worship, like I'm thinking about it in terms of like uh, attributing worth, uh, but like these kinds of actions of making the sacred and voting with our feet, like I, I, I love that, feel like kind of culturally on a good day, at least the opposite of this notion of like, I jumped through my church's loops, uh, through their hoops. And, I, and so uh, I went to church or I did my offering and therefore I don't need to think about God or being sacred or promoting uh, the divine in quote, regular life, right? Like when does the ritual begin uh, uh, kind of elements here and the idea of it creeping back because it's regular time, you know, like, so, so obviously you're going to get you know, more excited and start doing more things. And then those things start to accrue a, a ritual significance as well as just like the practicality of like, do you have enough to, like food to feed everyone that's coming tomorrow and that kind of stuff. So I like this idea of, uh, of us, yeah, of us, of us living our faith, you know, that, uh, the, the best prayer is action, right? Yeah. I think there's this, the same article in, from the Hemispheric Institute of from Africa to Spain, from the middle passage to the diaspora, the Virgin has continued to acquire new meanings and new followers. She's the transnational holy woman par excellence. As Robert Orsi concludes in his study of the Virgin in East Harlem, the quote, Madonna is as exposed as the rest of us are to the unexpected and unforeseen in life and in history, that her world changes and that even her identity is not singular or stable. This is what joins the Madonna and her pilgrims into a common lot. And so the, common, the author of the article goes on to say that is the Virgin remains important in the lives of her followers precisely because her image is in the site of continuous contestation and negotiation. Like the ocean, as the tides moving back in and out. And we're going to extend it in this particular circumstance. And also the, the putting with the feet thing, I believe, is a Turner thing, is a Victor Turner thing. I'm not sure, but it's mentioned in this article a few times. Yeah, the idea that, again, we're back to the notion of like a ritual doesn't have to be old to work. It has to work to be old. <laughs> like, like the, the, <laughs> the, the idea that like that this Marian uh, Yamaya figure, it has changed and that we don't erase that past and pretend that it was always that way, but that we understand this is fluxing and dynamics is also a sign of life. It is the pulse of the divine through human space and time rather than uh, this idea that things must have existed since forever or not at all. So I love this idea. Again, it feels like the thing we come back to in folk magic a lot of like, if you find, you know, 28 different love spell recipes involving apples, that doesn't mean that you should instantly be like, but which one's the right one? Like, it means that a lot of people are engaging with apple magic and finding particularities and, and expressions out of their own personal experience and spirit courts and conditions and whatnot. Like, like this again, like this, yeah, I love that quote. Like the dynamism of our very identity is also like, yeah, is uh, I, I'm with you also bobbing on the sea and shifting back and forth is the only way we can be stable. So the phrase, like the Aponte saying, Afro-Cubans associate the Virgin without a doubt with their racial identity. And it, it brings up that idea that not only is Yemaya a vision of Black identity in Cuba, of Black female identity in Cuba, with all of the racially inflected phrases that are deployed in the discourse of the time throughout history in Cuba, that are problematic and, and expand out through all of this, uh, beyond just problematic, they're just fucking awful half the time. There is something there that in the, because of the cultural context of this, because of, and specifically, I don't know, it's the, the vessel of the memory of Africanness is being paraded through the descendants who are, you know, in Brazil, they use the term Africa descendancy, the people who are of African descent in Cuba, that that, that, that 
that flux, the reification, it's, it's reinserting itself into a time. You're getting into notions of not just the archive, but the repertoire, the thing that is brought back to be current, that is performed over and over again to make sure that it is current. Because when we don't need to process the statue around anymore, it is no longer valid in some way. That you remember what you need type of thing, or you, yeah, you remember what you need. There's a prioritization that happens here. And how much we've lost in written culture where we, you know, we remember it because the book remembers it for us. And then we have to create a pilgrimage of going and looking up at our notes. But there's also pilgrimages of orality where like we, you have to embody the pilgrimage in this way in order to have those physical memories, the taste, the smells, the physical labor associated with carrying, you know, the santo around, the santa around. So I, there's something beautiful about all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was lost in <laughs> <laughs> This is also, I have to say, probably the most theory I've thought of in this, because like usually we pick a saint of the day, but the, specifically, I like the complexity of this one. Like, you can go read about the history. Wikipedia has lovely summaries. University of Dayton is up at the top of the Google thing, too. And it's love, you know, everybody phrases things just slightly differently, right? But <laughs> like, and you can look up the different things. There's that one that even shows one of the images of an early statue where she's like handing a pear to the, handing her son a pear that's mutilated. And it's uh, behind Morena, but it's interesting of like, you know, St. Augustine, an uh, angel appears to St. Augustine, commands him to sculpt the image. He was uh, uh, a Berber, right? This specific St. Augustine right, that is the Berber. And so the connotation is that he sculpted things in his own image. And therefore, his favorite disciple was the, one of the St. Cyprians and took this specific, specific was Dona to Chipiona in Espana, in Spain. But it, I don't know, it's fascinating all the way. It just... Buried underground by a well with a fig tree, hiding during the Reconquista and everything. And then, of course, curiously having the look of a 12th century statue, as often happens in Spain. Like Virgens in Spain, the virgins in Spain are kind of like the termas of Catholicism. I am, uh, you know, going to mangle a bunch of quotes from my excellent friend and co moderator of the Folk Necromancy Forum on the. Liba AF, uh, uh, Ben Joffe, uh, about like, yeah, termas and the, the link between revelation of sacred texts and, and treasure hunt, essentially, right? Like, yeah, of not just finding somewhere in the landscape where a treasure, whether, you know, gold or, you know, uh, doubloons or the treasure of some like, uh, mystics revelations about the divine or, or the, uh, the way in which they can, you know, avert, avert plague from the village or whatnot. This is very interesting to me. You're not just like looking for the spot. You're also doing a bunch of magic to charm the spirits that are hiding that treasure, sometimes like invisibly or transforming it into rocks or whatever. And you are, you are engaging with the spirits of the land and, and, and often like wrestling with them to pull out this revelation that can like literally spell itself out in the air. And things like that. This, yeah, this is really interesting to me. Yeah, especially if we take Mary as a kind of, because the Marian apparition, going back to the Virgin of, of the Pillar, right? Version of the Virgin de Pilar, the Spanish apparition. So St. James is in Spain. This is canonical. And he sees Mary apparate in front of him on a column. And she's alive at the time on the other side of the Mediterranean. 
And so the first Marian apparition is her bilocating to say, you need to come back. So there's something here. The thought of this is because if you're talking about termas, or specifically as, as within Tibetan Vajrayana, as I understand it, then, you know, write in and tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. No, but that the Baba Sambhava and, and that group knew that there was a time where the teachings would move forward and there needed to be something to animate the teachings of the future. And through their enlightened views of the future, they were able to plant texts which all still follow the same format. And curiously, the format that evolves over time. So it's not always the same format as the ancient ones, but like, you know, something that can provoke and stir the practice again in the future through the foresight, through the great foresight of enlightened beings. So I like to think of Mary as like that, of like maybe her Pilar was just the first in like, in the last few days, she was just like shooting out versions of herself everywhere. of Like, carve me, carve me, carve me, carve me, carve me. Uh, because it's always in like, you know, maybe it's that the person does find it. Maybe Mary does come and say, hey, I'm at the bottom of this well with the fig tree. And you get it. You're like, oh, you are too beat up. Let me recarb you. And then, of course, like my freshman year design teacher said about costume design or set design is that like, you'll always fill in your current ideas about something, the current time period's ideas to fill in the blanks. So it doesn't matter how historically accurate something is. Hi, Michael Cross, that was your quote or misquote. What about in the 80s, historical period dramas look like they're made in the 80s. These costumes, these uh, efforts to recreate a thing uh, are always going to bear the fingerprints of now on them. Yeah, we can't, we can't escape our temporal imprisonment, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there was a, it's amazing, like, oh, uh, a, a philosopher on the YouTubes, I forget his name, but he was very sweary and he was brilliant. And there was a line of, like, he was talking about transcendentalism. He was like, motherfucker, you can't stand outside of time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think I think there's a lot here. I think there's beautiful things in the Spanish way of like, what was it for the 300 years between you know the 14th century and the 17th century, they officially recognized like 104 miracles the church to this virgin, and that she freed prisoners, saved sailors from shipwrecks, children from drowning in wells, healed the sick. So this idea of the something referring or saving people is 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 important, and I it might even be that was the Black Madonna in general, but uh, but this is a very Beautiful expression of the Black Madonna and its continuation, continuation into the new world, quote unquote. It, you know, it's the thing we were talking about at the Salem Symposium. Like, I am very interested in how, what the relationship is between European esoterica, European magic systems, and how they are inherited by the new world, how they are promoted within the world and validated through the imposition of the old worldview, but then also kind of run with it in new ways, which kind of, you know, speaks to Jake's new Alexandria thing very heavily. Yeah. May not be able to recreate the time, but uh, we can draw great inspiration and, uh, and resolve from it. Yeah. So from one set of mysteries uh, concerning, gosh, the ocean, divinity, the depths of things, it feels pretty neat to look at the flip side of the divine, that which the divine... Uh, decries or otherwise sees as uh, evil rather than a good. Uh, so we picked Leviathan as our, ah. as our gosh, uh, uh, that is, uh, that is an ambitious, uh, <laughs> that's an ambitious topic to take into. It's amazing. Like I, I, yeah, it was totally a, like, okay, the Yemaya is associated with the Lokon and there's some possible Lokon stuff coming in with Iroson and this, this things that we're talking about. And of course, these things are on a watery, loner, oceany theme today. But I did not expect Leviathan was kind of a like, well, you know, beast of the deeps. Let's just see where it goes. And it kind of opened up a whole world of the deep. I mean, we can think about Leviathan as a as a scriptural demonic force or, 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 or thing or concept. 
And so we can look to Job where it turns up and we can look to uh, some Psalms. Uh, it's interesting to me in going through, I'm always going to go to, I'm always going to go King James, uh, don't tell the other Bibles. Uh, but it's interesting to see where the word is translated as, you know, a huge thing of the deep and when it's, uh, when it's specifically Leviathan and when people capitalize it and don't, and when it becomes literally like a whale as like the biggest thing we know about in the sea. Yeah. We get some stuff in Isaiah as well. We could go earlier in terms of like how we wanted to start if we're talking uh, an assessment of the chronology and talk about the reflections that are present, especially various scholars have pointed out in the book of Job uh, with Leviathan and the older Canaanite Lotan, this kind of uh, primeval monster that's supposedly defeated by uh, the god Baal Hadar. Uh, and again, yeah, there's plenty of comparative mythology, especially when we get into a new concept uh, uh, or an old concept that I made a new study of, uh, <laughs> the idea of chaos camps of the cosmic battle between some kind of monster, often a sea monster, but not exclusively, and often draconic in some form, as representing various forces of chaos, and a creator god or culture hero who, uh, who, who comes in and smacks it about and imposes order and, and allows us at least the foundation for later order. And so, you know, there's all sorts of comparative uh, mythological studies on, like, looking at Marduk and the battle and, uh, and victory over the serpent goddess Tiamat. And that, again, brings up concepts, again, around the body of this vast chaos dragon being used to, if not make the earth, then at least delineate between the heavens and the earth, which is really fascinating to me. And I, I super want to get further into this idea of like chaos and what chaos consists of in terms of like its abyssal dimensions. Um, but you've also got like Indra slaying uh, uh, Vitra and Thor slaying uh, uh, Yomaganda and those kinds of things. So like, I feel like that's a relatively good start from our kind of like, okay, we're looking at the shape of the story first. There's a certain surface exception of mythology when it's when you're like listening to the story side. And then of course there's the symbolism and like the things you can do dive deeper into. But the idea of chaos is water and the lack of stability is quite fascinating. That like, yes, the arguments around like fire breathing, but then like lightning coming up from the ocean as well as coming down to the ocean. Like we're talking about storms and the ocean's unpredictability, which is like that's reflected if we're gonna go Yamaya of like Yamaya's dance starts off like very simple with the flirt scats. This they're the flirt scapping. Wow, the skirt flapping with the hands. And then the Agolona comes in and she starts spinning very fast, like a storm at sea. And it can get very like even when she's standing, like she's standing like she's on a boat, like to, like it's like she's the torso is like rotating as if it's not on solid land. And how do you represent a benefic force like Yamaya that is the universal mother in contrast to the terrible mother of Tiamat, the mother of creation, the mother of lies, the, the, the instability of the universe that must, of course, be rested by a male god in losing order? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, yeah I'm just going through my notes and found another one, right? You've got the third millennium uh, Sumerian stuff depicting uh, Ninurta overcoming literally a seven-headed serpent as well, if we're going to talk about mothers of abomination. Right. right. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. the, the pairing up of Leviathan with Be Behemoth and Ziz or Ziz. So you have the land monster of Behemoth and then you have Ziz who's like the griffin that blocks out the sun and just the traveling of Leviathan of or Levinathan or there's different words and also the association with that one river. Right, so there's a Leviathan River that has seven tributaries along it, and it's it's in is it in Lebanon? It has its seven daughters or its seven heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course, why it gets associated as a demon, but like really, like it almost feels like um like a whole class of things that we just rather would not name. Uh, right, right. The idea of like what's at the bottom of the ocean needs to stay at the bottom of the ocean. 
Yeah. And, and, and why is it that the, the sigil of Baphomet of the Church of Satan, like, uses Leviathan around the outside? This is an interesting point in terms of, like, Leviathan turns up in the Bible, obviously, and, and for uh, to say, like, and, you know, and Hashem and, and God, are, you know, have, have got you right on this, that there's great evils lurking in the corners and the depths of the world, but, like, seek the light and that kind of thing. But there isn't a formal, as far as I'm aware, like, so many formal stories within at least Christian, if not can speak less of, of, of Jewish law, about Leviathan actually being defeated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's just this ongoing thing. That said, you know, Psalms has stuff about like breaking the heads of Leviathan in pieces, you know, uh, and that this is... So there is a sense of like, we also get that the evil is there so we can talk about defeating it. Do you get any sense of like... It's interesting because if I, you know, looking at the sigil of Baphomet itself and the original of that is uh, French, right? It's late 19th century... Pictorial history. Uh, uh, Maurice Bessie's book was the Pictorial History of Magic and the Supernatural. And that was where the words Samael and Lilith were removed from the sigil. But it still had Leviathan around the outside, which is, it, it would appear that that's what Levey got his, he grabbed onto that at that point. But it first appeared in La Clef de Magie Noir by French occultist Stanislas de Guaita. Wait, that's the pronounced like a Spaniards. But uh, when it's on the edge like this, it brings up the notion of like the, the Yorgamander thing of like, is there a horizon? Like water seeks the horizon. Is this a horizontal thing? Is this the container of the world? Because then you have Samael Lilith around the head of the Baphomet as like the rulers of the world, right? The Rex Mundi factor of like, we are the, we are owned by the devil as all matter is. And that everything encompassed by Leviathan is this, the, the waters of, of creation that, that, that go around the planet or that flow through all things in the, in the Hebrew Cosmovision. Like, there's something interesting to that that is, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah, delineation, like description and definition being a, 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 an inherent or by definition defining and, and, and limiting that tool, right? Yeah, I mean, we're back to the kind of monism of this, right? I, I, I came across um, uh, Pharisees of Syros, who's uh, kicking around roughly in the 6th century before the Common Era, who's one of these folks that interprets chaos as water, or at least as saying, like, we should think about chaos in watery ways as something formless that can be differentiated, right? And so you get all these concepts around emptiness and vast void and chasm and abyss related to uh, chaosko and chiano uh, in the Greek, uh, from gaping to be wide open. But then when we define an opening, we are therefore, you know, the whole is something that gets bigger than what it's taken away. But yeah, we're thinking about not just a, a, an edge, but a, a precipice, this black hole at the center of all things, at the center of the world, right? Yeah. Did you see the, the Rashi commentary? That's fascinating. No, the, I didn't. The, the implication that there are two Leviathans and that because of the, the plural markers and things like that, and that the female was who was slain and the male still exists because if they propagate, then the world could not exist because they were destroyed. And so that in the Feast of Sukkot, the Festival of Booths of, of the Tabernacles, which has important reasons for me otherwise, um, in Spanish weird uh, folk magic, but that there concludes a prayer recited on leaving the Sukkah. May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our forefathers, that just as I have fulfilled and dwelt in this Sukkah, this so may I merit in the coming year to dwell in the Sukkah of the skin of Leviathan next year in Jerusalem. Because at the end of time, when Jerusalem is reclaimed, that they will hang the skin of Leviathan onto the walls of Jerusalem and illuminate the world with its brightness because its skin is causes like flashes of light, like lightning. Okay. So there is a, there is a, there is definitely keyed in. Like I, I totally misspoke then. There's definitely the idea of, of defeating Leviathan at some point, if not already having done. 
but uh, half the Leviathan at that. And the female half specifically. That like mm-hmm. it, it goes from a couple that one has been slain, which then of course means that the water is only on one half of the world, right? There's something to that. That like mm-hmm. the chaos of the world only exists in part, that if it mm-hmm. did exist in whole, that there would not be any room for order. That also that also pisses off the mate, right? There's something to that too. Yeah. Yeah. But then it's not just angry but sad. Yeah. This point about um, light is really interesting to him for this spirit so bathic uh, spirit. I don't know this uh, this concept entity so uh, well, about these abyssal deeps and the primordial waters that you know that the rest of the world was kind of called out of uh, by the divine. It's interesting to me how many references there are to Leviathan having these like very Western fiery dragon things related to it. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff in this in Job about uh, it snorting, throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Uh, flames stream out. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Yes, its yes. breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. So there's a number of ways we can go here, but like the idea that it is, I don't know, it just it, it makes me think of like the abhorrence to nature and the aberrant physics of this deep water being breathing fire and things like that it's the communion of the righteous right so like the final leviathan is slain and the flesh is served to the righteous in jerusalem and the skin is the tent where it will take place so you notice it because of the light and those who do not deserve to consume its flesh may receive various vestments of leviathan varying from coverings like people who should at least have the vestment on them or for amulets for the least deserving. So at least all of the righteous will have will partake in some communion of the Leviathan, which is fascinating. They like the t- and again the final last bits that God had to tame the universe enough to the the spirit moving over the waters. It's almost too much, right? We animated too much. We animated like now there's chaos. But then erase half of it by killing the female half, and then at the end of time, all of it will be taken, so that order is the only thing left. And then, again, this is not just killing the beast to, to spill its blood in a matter of like victory of the righteous. It's also again, feeding the community. Yeah. It's quite fascinating. I don't, I just, I like, obviously the cryptozoology of the, of the scripture is quite interesting in its own right. I also love as, you know, I have, we've discussed the Mary of the holiest light in, in that is worshiped the image in Leon in Guanajuato, where my uh, part of my Mexican family is from that has Mary depicted in front of a hellmouth. And the Hellmouth is the other connection to Leviathan, right? That, that there is an art tradition of using Leviathan as the Hellmouth itself, the, the Draco, the Drakon that is the mouth that consumes all. So I, I, I find that quite fascinating too. That and, and specifically, it warrants a longer thing because I do love the Virgin of the Holiest Light. But what reason she's deemed heretical is because she is holding someone, apparently pulling them out of the Hellmouth. And this goes against even Catholic doctrine, that Mary can't save you from hell. But from the, the fact that this is painted by, I believe, a Sicilian Jesuit who then goes to Mexico, or the painting is then sold in Mexico. And we've talked a little bit about how there's so many Sicilian, there's actually quite a bit of Sicilian influence into Northern Mexican Christianity to Catholicism, uh, the worship of St. Rosalia, for instance, along the border is, and her patronage of the state of Chihuahua. But the, the Hellmouth, again, the, the, then it has to look like, you know, it's not just the Buffy thing, but like it literally an entity itself. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're snatching it from the jaws of evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, it's not just a portal that Mary rips into hell to 
do her own little harrowing, but it's an entity she is battling with that the, that the aperture is also understood as a being of some sort. The book of Abramelin that, that posits Leviathan as one of the princes of hell, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucifer, Belial, Satan, and Leviathan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's the incorporation. Uh, and again, that feels very, we can, we can take all sorts of elemental readings into that, you know, Satan is the, uh, as the prince of, of air and the, and the aerial spirits, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. 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 So that's also a start of understanding the depths, uh, both can be thought of as the whole world, but can also be thought of as one fourth of it, so to speak with the other elements. Yeah. 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 And, and, and arguably the start of trying to understand again, yeah. Uh, the demonologies of holy scriptures. Uh, again, it's having a, an element of like how you live in the world, not just what you need to write in a particular circle to uh, to do some some seriously spooky magics, right? I'm also curious the you know the Ulfites are a sect that is we know so little about, but are often quoted a lot just because of evidence of Gnosticism and the way things go with the conflation of Leviathan with the serpent of the garden. Oh, we don't know how they feel about it. We know that it's an Ouroboros like separation between the divine realm and the material world, just you know like the order monger thing yeah. but the, we don't know if it was good or bad since leviathan is usually negative in most gnostic cosmology gnostic wow uh Nazgul type cosmology that you know liber wikipedia does make the note that he was probably considered evil and just his advice was good in the garden right you know that's <laughs> like, again they did not commit a logical fallacy the advice can come from a bad source a stopped clock etc yeah 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 and again like this reminds me of so many of the um the hand wringing about the witch of endor and, and Samuel's uh, repair. And it's very much a kind of like illicit, but not invalid kind of uh, problem where like very few people argue that the advice wasn't good because it was, because the Bible story has it literally accurate, right? That like what she said happened, right? Like it was good advice. The issue wasn't the advice was bad. The issue was like, you shouldn't have got it that way. And then I think uh, it was, is it, a, is it Rudolf Steiner that, that points out the, I can never remember if something's actually properly Rudolf Steiner or if it's Manichaeism. <laughs> like, I, you know, the books are all talking about both half the time. But the Leviathan is killed by, by Shinyaza. They've got a soft spot for it. Right, right. With all that Isaiah biz outside of its, you know, very particular proto-nationalistic propaganda is also full of great Luciferian business. Yeah, that, that there's a notion that in Shinyaza killing Leviathan, that it's actually a symbol of transient victory. The, the, the boast of it does nothing and actually is a, a, a commentary on kind of like the, oh, I'm going to bastardize it. But that, that Swedish concept, is it Lutheran or something where you, you can't brag about something too much? You can't, be, you can't be the best in two things. Like just, just <laughs> satisfied with being good in one thing. Right, 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 right. Which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, often uh, I've, I've, I've uh, yeah, like I've encountered people who are like, this is terrible. Like you're imposing this sense of like shame on people for their success. But I think there's a little something in there of like, if you are doing good stuff, then it should be enough that you're doing that good stuff. And it, you don't have to necessarily get involved in the egoic practice of working out how you relate to else and how good they are. I don't know. Okay. So if we have this Leviathan side of things, I think it's, I mean, we could, I like when you first were talking about transitioning Leviathan, I didn't know which topic we're going to skip to. That was kind of fun. <laughs> but I do think uh, it, it brings to mind immediately this idea, do you remember Sequest? I'm just going to put that out there. Oh, Sequest DSV? Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. The, but again, the notion that the ocean's unexplored and there's a lot down there, you get into like the abyss and the all these different things are, are even sphere and like the Michael Crichton 
fun stuff, but no one knows what lies at the bottom of the sea is kind of the bridge there that I'm using to, to transition to an perhaps earlier than usual discussion of Odu and, and figure. Because we talk, we're talking about Irosun and Fortuna Minor today, yeah? Um, I hope so, because that's what I'll prepare. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but Irosun is, uh, as the Odu, you know, that we, and we, we, we have talked about this. I think we're actually now getting to the point where we've, we've talked about all the figures in the Odu before. But the idea that Irosun is the sounding Irosun is the warning that comes there, that the, one of the common refrains is, no one knows what lo- lies at the bottom of the ocean except God. Or no one knows what lies at the bottom of the ocean except the lopen, the lopen, the depths of the ocean, the odor of the ocean. Pure mystery, the extreme weight that pure pulls water back down into itself. And that if we can capture what that gravity is, that same thing can be used to direct ourselves to destiny the way that currents are used, right? So water has these invisible highways that we can navigate amazing things in Irosun, but Irosun itself is mystery and promotes an instability of the environment. So it brings to mind those things of like the watery scales of Leviathan or even to the benefic side of Yamaya not standing perfectly still when she's standing up straight. So the Irosun has this kind of feeling of, of discouragement or, or losing interest in what they're doing or perhaps it's, it's a harbinger of other things to come, but it's not bad in any shape because Odu or Odu, right? It's important to have the Odu speak when it's going to speak. But... uh all the fingers of children are of the same hand and none can separate. Uh, the fire is shut off not only, not only with water, but also with intelligence. The tree that is born crooked will never straighten up. One man alone saves the town. The caged bird misses his home. These are some of the refrains from Irosun Meji. But it's, uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to look at. That instability is there, that the nails and the walls of the house, the pin hinges coming out, you know, like the holes that are causing things. There's some pretty profound Orisha that, that, that are speaking there. And that's, you know, first and foremost coming to light of only Olobun and Olorun or, or God are knowing the science-full implications. They can't be expressed in mortal tongue, which is like, okay, that's, that's a lot to, to say. And so then like, okay, or always Eligua is going to be there because he's there in every Bodu, but the Oba and the, what, what we call the pink ladies, right? You know, and uh, are all there. A little bit of Shana, maybe. The, the severity is there. There's something there. The ocean means severeness. And it brings to mind the, what we think about a local, even though we would put, a lot of people put that in, it would be the equivalent of Karkar, you know, we know the, uh, this is a, an earth sign. This is a, all the things of the world. But Irosun itself is that, like it reminds uh, some tell the story of the, the buoy, right? That has that weight on the bottom that should be mostly standing upright. But if it's starting to tip a lot, that's like, that's a bad sign. Yeah, there's, there's definitely this thing in the counterpart in geomantic figure of Fortuna Minor of um, the instabilities of the world and how we best navigate them. Definitely a lot of like, there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. And you got to learn to take the crunchy with the smooth Fortuna Minor. A lot of them often contrast it to Fortuna Major, the other figure that's generally regarded as ruled by the sun and where Fortuna Major rules the like the hard work of the sun illu- rising and illuminating with its dawn rays, the work that has to be done, the work that you have to do yourself. And that uh, yeah, I often talk about Fortuna Major as like a building a big golden tank that you get inside and then, you know, withstand the, the two steps forward, one step back of the outrageous slings and arrows of the world. As, uh, in contrast, Fortuna Minor is very much a figure of like 
working out how to uh, how to navigate the tides of uh, of fate's fickle fortunes, you know, of the again of the good and the bad, and of the only stability being you know constant readjustments and things. Yeah, that makes sense because the like some of the things signal here could be someone has lots of things going and just doesn't know how to finish any of them first, and so it can be pulled in with one hand and thrown out with the other. So there's just this need to kind of like not bring in other Odu influence of like where we go to when it's complete inaction, complete indecision. But like there's this can mark for a business like you're like, you need to focus because you're wasting resources and you're wasting time. So it's again, nothing bad per se, but it's a prediction of less good to come if you're not careful. Right. So it, there's the, the thing of like health wise to wash the eyes or anything in pairs, the things that you grab, the things that pairs in our body, the kidneys, the lungs, the ovaries, the testicles, the legs, the arms, the nostrils, the ears, these things that we need to like our sensory interaction with the world to make sure that we're on task. And then also like the person might present everything's great, but that's not the reality if that's what they're presenting. In the same way that if they think everything's bad, horribly bad, more than likely in this side, it's not that it's horribly bad, it's that that's their spin on it right now. They're locked in a difference of, they're in a dissonance is really what we're talking about. It's, uh, it's usually, I mean, geomancers are an idiosyncratic bunch. Uh, and so it's often read either as a, an airy figure, which is how I do it, uh, but also as a fiery figure sometimes as well. And even in its, you know, airiest, oh, we have put it in the category of one of the airy quartets. It still has a lot of choleric uh, particularities to it. This thing, not just of, um, we absolutely see that too, of like people's vantage again. Uh, how you are attempting to tailor the past is always going to have the fingerprints of now on it. You know, the way you are interpreting what's happened is very much uh, at the mercy of what's currently going on with you. But there's this real sense of, of a choleric pushback on things. And so this strange admixture of, on the one hand, it is like, oh, you know, an airy figure of like, it's, it can be very much a figure of like coasting and of like just getting, you know, ah, just, you know, doing my thing and not, you know, and, and keeping my head down slash uh, you know, not volunteering for anything. There's kind of two, two answers there. But it also, when it gets into a, um, and everything is fine and good and it's happy go lucky until it is pressed into a corner where it can get very vituperative and defensive and everything's like breezy and fine and all good in the hood until like it isn't for you. Uh, 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 and then the fig, yeah, and then this, the energies that mark this figure and this pattern of, of, of nature playing out. We'll get, uh, we'll get frothy. We'll get, we'll get hot headed. We'll get choleric about things. That's why I'm not really, a really interesting little detail. You get the same with, um, Albus, interestingly. Like Albus is, you know, Mercury, the, the librarian, the white one, the sage, the architect of information, the keeper of the archive, uh, and is generally a figure of ingenuity and industry and like really hard work and being a, a big nerd about stuff. But like being a big nerd, it also has these very particular things in certain houses with certain configurations where it's also about nerd rage. You misquoted that, my, my favorite author. You, you, you're wrong about that thing that I've spent three years thinking about. You're just being wrong. And it will have this, like, again, it'll have these flashes of, like, of anger and choler to it in an otherwise very peaceful sign because, you know, peaceful is not the same as harmless, right? Um, yeah, so Fortuna Minor definitely has those, those, uh, it, it's a, it's a strange figure. And, and yeah, often connotes in specific houses, the not necessarily a bad deal, but the less good deal gives few children, uh, will get, you know, 
the deal will be good financially, but not as good as you think. It's not that it's bad. It's just predicting less good things. It, yeah, it's also like the complications of life, the ups and downs of like, sure, you'll get, you know, uh, sure, you'll, you'll, you'll get married, but like you will also have a bunch of issues with the wedding, right? Things like that. And not just in a more Setian way. Yeah, but, it prolongeth contentions uh, and maketh one's adversaries to circumvent him with many cavillations. Uh, but in process of time, he giveth victory. So it's also a, it's more complicated, especially as regards to what is like crossing you or, 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 or an adversary right now. Did you say complicated? Because if you did, I prefer that word. I may well have done. Or maybe I'm saying like hearing through the Zoomiverse, but which I do appreciate that I know when you're quoting, uh, because you are an early modern person that the F comes back in and it's like, oh, he's quoting. Oh, that's lovely. We have to perfect our podcast voices of, and this is how I quote a book in my chest presidents for you. I think there's something interesting with this sign too that like, you know, that pertains to some of the other things we're talking about of uh, that dissonance with reality that can happen a little bit. Um, It's not a bad thing, but the longer you have to kind of encourage a recheck in, a a a recalibration with the desert of the real so that you don't die of thirst Uh, because uh, it does fit our Prospero really well in that way, interestingly. Of like, everything's fine because all the circumstances on an island are controlled. But then variables are added into the system and he loses his shit. And doesn't go the easiest way, but that's but then it wouldn't be a play that was worth watching. Especially a comedy. But that's a super great point, right? Uh, happy-go-lucky is fine as long as things are unexpectedly good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't control this change. How dare you? How very dare you? Yeah, it's exactly. His, uh, his little ecosystem is... Yeah, that's a great lesson for you, right? He's the boss of this tiny nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's one more thing I wanted to raise about uh, uh, Fortuna Minor, and this may well feed into, this is, this is relevant to Prospero and then thinking about The Tempest as well, which is that one of the things about Fortuna Minor is it's very good at getting help from other people. It itself is kind of conjunctio-ish in terms of how good it is at glad-handing and networking, and is often a thing of like, you will make many friends, but not many of them will turn up to your birthday. Like, there's that kind of quality to it in some cases. But it's very good at asking for help, whereas Fortuna Major, the other solary figure, is terrible at asking for help. We'll try and do absolutely everything itself. Absolutely the figure of your work, all like friends. And Fortuna Minor it absolutely props up. I think I may have mentioned this in the previous uh, episodes we've done that mentioned it. Uh, that uh, it's often the thing that comes to look after my clients who are doing some nine to five desk job, but are secretly like working on their novel or their book of poetry. And it's great for like that kind of work coasting, this kind of elements of boss fix and kind of enough invisibility to not be bothered or volunteered for things, but not so much that no one knows why you're there or why they haven't fired you yet. And I just wondered if, uh, if like you, you see that with Erosun and its, its conceptions of when to bring in help and when to put on your Mrs. Manager pants. I can't speak with like overarching authority, but I do think one of the notions with the Erosun falling is that it is considered a warning that buoy is tipping, the Osun is sounding, the bells of alarm are sounding. And it's tied to menstruation in that way. That something is, it's not the end, but there is now a general precautionary maintenance that must be asserted. Oh, and you must determine which aspect of your life, if not all of it, that must be, you know, investigated. So making sure that doors are fastened, that floorboards are good, that, you know, that your clothes are okay. Don't poke your, don't look through keyholes. Don't look, don't cross fold like this whole thing of like avoid the unknown at this time. 
because you're already in a realm of unknown. So don't add to it. Don't rock the boat. It's already rocking from the outside, right? Yeah, you know, the ocean is there. So I think there's there might be ideas there of what you're saying, but I also see it on the prophylactic, like the need for the prophylactic side to kick in of like, and now you do your maintenance checks. Now you do your, you know, boosting your your securities, your wards, your go back over things that you think are done because they might not be correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now is the time to be fastidious precisely because you haven't been. Yeah. Fortuna Minor absolutely rules um, quick fixes. Hold it together with duct tape until you get to the finish line kind of thing. Yeah. It's because it's the, it's like the door is taped instead of using hinges or something. So now's the time to make sure somebody took yeah. their nails out. So things yeah. fall down. And again, it's a really important sign to fall because it gives you that warning. Right. And it's right. also like, don't let it fall, don't let it fall, don't let it fall. Right, right. Rather it didn't, or, yeah, but if it has to, rather it very much does. Yeah, you can pretend loose ends don't exist, or you can go around making sure to tie up loose ends. Right, right. But there's, a, there's an action that is prescribed by this sign falling. And when is something unknowable, and when is it just something you don't want to look at? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. All right, so, so our, our rightful Duke of Milan on his island, learning a sorcery from books. We've got from... Um, from a, a goddess of the bay or a patron of, of a bay come from old world to new and accruing new watery meanings to the primordial thing in the bottom or in the corners of the world or in the edge of the hellmouth to arguably like kind of the middle of nowhere and a uh, and a wizard on a on an island uh doing his thing as you say doing his thing badly in a way that produces uh, some quality drama so in looking at prospero i ended up spending a lot of time going through articles about his magic specifically there's a number of other angles we could have taken. Um, just been going through Roy Palmer's folklore of Warwickshire, which does a, a great job of um, of all of the local stories of like, oh, this is where Shakespeare drank, uh, and this is where he, um, you know, cursed a tree, and various other bits of like folk hagiography and things like that. So we could take the angle of like how much, you know, what's Shakespeare reading to uh, what's he quoting to talk about his magic, which we get a lot in in the Scottish play and Treatment of the Witches, but. I ended up just thinking about the limitations, I, w- I want to say, of Prospero's magic, of where it's delineated. In that classic like advice for fantasy writers about like have a hard line about what is and isn't magic and how it works so no one is confused and gets to like complain about, oh, you just said a wizard did it. There is a bunch of stuff in the play about like the limits of what he can do and can't do and where his purview reaches and where his horizon is, right? Which I, I find really fascinating, whether or not we're talking about exactly the relationship between Prospero and Ariel, or especially Caliban. There are countless uh, post-colonial texts uh, uh, explicating that complicated relationship. Uh, but also, you know, what the whole deal of the play in terms of his elaborate meet-cute is to get Miranda, uh, you know, a nice husband. Uh, that's, that to me is, 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 is really fascinating. And again, that's, that's hardly new commentary to say like, Oh, Prospero is constructing kind of a play within the play. Oh, I love Charlie Calvin. But uh, there's also plenty of stuff about what it means to create storms and what it means to shake people up and what it means to come to the dawning of, uh, of facing the future rather than uh, lurking in the corners. Those were the, the kind of initial themes that I wanted to, uh, to hit on with Prospero, along with, you know, we can also talk about comparisons to John Dee, the summoning of, uh, of a tempest to, to sink the Armada on a, on a, on a particularly uh, a, a Spanish holy day as well, I believe. The, the Spanish Armada sails towards England on September 8th, right? So that's the Feast of the Virgin of Regla. There we go. That's where it came up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting figure because the, 
notably the the idea that this is Shakespeare's last written play, you know, there are those that say he wrote none of them. But bearing my last name as I do, I must support, even if he hated my ancestors. <laughs> That's the second best bet for you. The idea that this was an actor's role is quite fascinating. That this is the, the aged actor's tribute to acting. And what it is that acting does, the creation of worlds, the creation of reality, though that you that bubble of I'm going to live in a bubble on stage where trouble exists. And this might flag things going on for you in your life that you might too similarly see in resonance and therefore affect a change that you might, through my tribulations, not necessarily engage the same end. And certainly, like, that's where, like, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Greenway Silver Prospero's books. It's a famous avant-garde, I think it's late 80s, early 90s. So it's just uh, focusing on Prospero as Shakespeare and rehearsing the action inside his head and it speaks the lines of all the other characters and concluding the film by sitting down to write The Tempest. But it's a, it's a visual high, you know, everything's a definitely a product of its time. Uh, Michael Lyman was the musical composer and uh, Saburta was the choreographer. You know, it has, it's one of those ones, it's like, it's an art film. I remember renting it from Music Plus when I was like 13 or 14. <laughs> Even my dad was like, what are you watching? But I, you know, I remember specifically, and I was obsessed with um, like aerial changes between uh, a boy and adolescent and a youth and a boy singer. And these are representing classical elementals that the list of Prospero's books is 24 books and is reminiscent of the lost books of Epicurus. You know, a book of water, book of mirrors, book of mythology, a primer on the small stars, an atlas belonging to Orpheus, a harsh book of geometry, the book of colors, the anatomy of birth, the alphabetical inventory of the dead. Book of Traveler's Tales, Book of the Earth, the Architecture and the Music. 92 Conceits of the Minotaur was always this like, it's like someone must write this book. So yeah, Book of Universal Cosmography, The Lore of Ruins, Autobiographies of Pasiphae, Semiramis, uh, Book of Motion, The Book of Games, and 36 Plays, it's Book 24. So I, for me, there's something interesting here in the sense of like, if it's being held up as this, the greatest of actors parts, right? Like there's something, and if you're also a child of the 90s, then you're going to, Quite essentially hear Lorena McKinnon's version of the final soliloquy, right? Now my charms are all overthrown in wild strength. I have my own. That speech, let your indulgence set me free. This idea of, uh, it brings in again the, the notions of the repertoire and how a play is performed many times. This idea of uh, magic and acting, the parallels there of infelicitous performance, as it could be called by Austin of like, acting itself is infelicitous. It is not genuine. The person who is married on stage is, no, is not married in truth. And therefore, there is something inherently perverse in this, in its mimicry of life. And yet at the same time, the actor and the performer and the, the person who's like, but it is so much truer, right? This is, the, this is truth with a capital T. And it's just a magician. It's true beyond your particular individual experience. Only. Yeah, and certainly, like, I think there's something, too, of if you have seen the Tempest, which I do think there's something also in the, the idea of it being the Tempest and not a Tempest. And therefore, the Tempest marks the storm at the beginning either as the most pivotal, important thing, or that the Tempest is something else other than the storm that, that lost them all. And that's fascinating to me. Not a Tempest and its aftermath, but the Tempest. And maybe I'm, you know, projecting modern sensibilities of definite and definite articles backwards upon what could be a, a publisher's choice. It's a great, like, in media res, you know, of, like, the first scene, I believe, is the ship being tossed about, right? Yeah, Bosun, yeah, that whole scene, uh, Botswain. And it's not, certainly not the only Shakespeare that has a huge storm in it either, right? Pericles has that huge storm in it as well. That's just, it's, it, it leaves an interesting opportunity for things. 
but this idea of the magic and, and, and it is interesting that this play, which is quintessentially one of the most magical discussions of Shakespeare, along with maybe Macbeth and Midsummer, right? There's some mentions of like, you know, English folk tales in, in, in John, but like, we're talking like, those are the, the pivotal three witches, a magician and fairies. Like that's the good shit. I love everybody remembers Romeo and Juliet, but like, that's, that's something different. The apothecary is not the wizard there. Thing you mentioned about like, oh, there are, you know, it's not the only Shakespeare play without the store. It's really interesting because, you know, the super big man, is it still pathetic fallacy if it's like, uh, you know, the thunder at the world being turned upside down that like nature has been subverted by mankind's lust for power and the wrong king is currently in charge. And so the world is responding by kind of like losing its shit in various ways. The, 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 the tax on the sky are coming out and the nails no longer hold it and things are starting to, to heave and break because something else is at odds with nature. This is interesting because, yeah, again, it, it, it feeds into the, the playwright as magician or, magician or Prospero as uh, the playwright as well as the actor because, like, this is an example of it not just being a deliberate play, a deliberate storm in a play because the writer wrote it and because this was meant to express some, you know, it was meant to instantiate some dramatic uh, truth or, or encounter. It's literally the, the diegetic actions of the wizard in the play as well. I, I do have a flash of curiosity there of like, again, the admonition, the right one should not perform the start the geomancy oracle if the if there is foul weather outside, that this shows that the earth is not in a receptive state to things going on, that the animal mundi is not in, not, is, is otherwise not listening or not talking or something, or is already talking and the signs are there. Just, right, which is harder work, more like, more static, more robot voice on the, uh, on, on the Yeti connected up to the oracle, uh, the, the blue mind Yeti, you let Yeti like, uh, connected up to the oracle that you just like are going to have to shout louder. It's not in my experience that uh, storm toss geomancy shields are deceiving in the same way that a chart that should be halted by Rubius, in my experience, is often not just inaccurate information, but like the advice that's going to make things way worse. You know, uh, it doesn't have that quality usually, but it is harder to get definite hits mm. for sure. A storm tosses. That it, that it, it creates static or interference or noise against the signal. Which if we're going off of the idea of sand cutting, then of course, rain means that your markings are not going to be preserved. Yeah. And is it so simple a term? It is never so simple a thing ever, but the practicality is such a beautifully thing, beautiful thing sometimes of like, well, then we can, then we can justify the practicality later in cosmic ways, but it is also a practical piece of it. Of, yeah, of- it's hard to count the marks you've made in sand when the, when the storm is kicking it in your eyes. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's unfair. And even if we're going to get speculative about it, you know, I have time for samples um, yeah. stuff. I have a friend, Sarah, Sarah over it. You'll be happy to know you have time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have time for him I, I, on occasion. But I do. Uh, no, I had time to think about, uh, I make time to sit and think about uh, his proposed. I don't think it's, I would need to check with him whether he's proposed this or just found a bunch of articles about possible proto-histories of Ramel and of the sand marking, maybe in the, not just of the flight of birds, but when birds land in the sand and what markings they leave behind uh, before they take off again. And so again, we may have a very practical thing if that is the root of it, of some kind of memory of, you know, you don't get a lot of birds landing in, in, in storms. And certainly a lot of these early divinatory oracles are shorthand for such natural observances. Of like, how can we manipulate the capturing of this event in a way that's in, that's that that nods to those occurrences, you know, or the notion of like the divider of the augur as someone who can control the fate as well, right? The, that that old concept of 
by changing the sign, what have you changed by telling the client or letting that be spoken of instead? Or the priest who is hired to throw white doves in front of the augury window in during a public assessment of a king's virtue or trial. So yeah, how, often, how often those those markers of like, oh, what was I talking to? I took uh, uh, Brandon Weston about finding particular animals in trees being an augury sign. I think, like, I think it was something about like, Coming back from having done the work, you can do various auguries to determine how the work is going, uh, kind of thing. And like finding particular animals in trees is often seen as a sign that uh, there's been complications with the work and it may be blocked or, again, it's more complicated than that. And so it's like, so does that mean people throw animals in trees to make blockages to work as well? Like, because again, as soon as there's a thing, there's what you can do with that thing. As soon as there's a bad influence, you can also ask about, well, I'm going to try and redirect that influence. Yeah. Like, uh, we just need to see dubs. The cap just needs to be black for that hair. Great. Uh, let me go find the shoe polish, you know? Yeah. The, uh, you may have killed the disorder of the female Leviathan, but the male is going to pop his head real quick. Right, 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 right. I don't <laughs> just, I, I'm not just a, uh, uh, a victim to, to fate's tides. I also make the weather sometimes. Yeah, I think there's a lot of beautiful things that are complex with Prospero there. This idea of the book magician, yes, the D influence, yes, you know, if it is a Shakespeare and playing upon the notable archetype of the Magus at that time, comparing it to the actor in his books and, or the playwright in their plays of like, what have I accumulated? What is the thing that outlasts me? You know, what is that tempest of thought where creativity sparks? What is it when the little luceros go off in your brain of like, oh, I can start something now? You know, the, the fireflies of inspiration, the, the sweat of the muse's brow type of thing. There's something in that because it is not why so convoluted a reason or a way to get coupling to happen. Well, this is the fascinating point for me. Uh, 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 and it made me dig through my, uh, my doctoral research as well in terms of magic and the passions. Yeah. So, you know, you have a doctorate. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, oh, did I mention? Oh, did I mention? Sorry, doctor. He says lovingly caressing his doctorate. Uh, 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 no, this is a really fascinating point because on the one hand, certainly, you know, there are various magics, especially which things called witchcraft. So they're absolutely about cultivating a passion and then using the violence of that passion to, to broach your own porous mind, body, soul, self-complex and to like affect the world. Like there's, yeah. there's a lot of stuff even in Agrippa when we start to look at when he talks about the cultivation of passional virtues in the body in order to expel them. These are the roots of like charging up your evil eye, things like that. So on the one hand, there's absolutely the sense that passional is magically, uh, the passions are magically uh, affective, that there's an affectivity to them beyond your own kind of experience and expression. But there's this other notion here that, and again, we're into the kind of duality of love being considered both a maddening thing and all the references to, you know, Ovid and the soldier of love being like being a wound and those kinds of concepts and, and love sickness and things to also this idea of, of love is, you know, is, a, is an ennobling and divine divinizing thing. And so there's this idea that like, actually you can't, there are no love spells. There are only lust spells or spells that recreate the symptoms and conditions of lust. And so, and a necromancer switch, right? Graves at my command have waked their sleepers up and let them forth by my so potent art, right? But on the other hand, it said he can't, we find this explicitly in the play with, uh, despite the fact, you know, it's made very clear that Prospero, you know, knows his way around a, a, a blasting rod and uh, he, he can't force love. He can't, though great magician he might be, he has no power to bring two young parts to be as one. 
in the planting of love, he says, Ariel beats old god Cupid all to nothing, for it is uh, through some witchcraft of his that Ferdinand and Miranda are surprised into a mutual rapture. And this, this really like puts me in mind of another uh, kind of vague, uh, later early modern playwright, Thomas Middleton, uh, and his play The Witch, uh, which I found out from uh, a good friend Cadmus's talk at the Salem Witchcraft and Folklore Festival this year. There were songs from The Witch that were actually used in, in, in certain versions of, uh, in certain renditions of the Scottish play, interesting. Yeah. But the titular character in, in, in Middleton's The Witch, which, by the way, has a bunch of extracted names of demons and invocations and ingredients from Scott's discovery, chalk one up for that team. The, 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 the witch who play the eponymous uh, worker of Maleficia is asked if she can destroy a marriage. And she says, no, uh, time must do it. Uh, we can't disjoin wedlock. Uh, Tis of heaven's fastening. Well, may we raise jars, jealousies, stripes, and heart-burning disagreements like a thick scurf o'er life, as did our master, you know, the goat of Mendez, uh, upon that patient miracle, but the work itself, our power cannot disjoint, right? These stirrings of jealousy and strife and things like that and hate magic and the curse work of generating arguments can be done in order that the marriage might fall apart, but there's no wishing stone spell to just make a marriage not exist anymore, right? You can, th th there's all sorts of direct realms of emotional manipulation that have an expressed and passional basis, but you're not just conjuring the result out of nowhere. You work towards your goals by these occult and interpersonal strategies. And so that's partly what I, I see in terms of the merry dance beyond it just being like, you know, a play that you want to sell tickets to uh, in, in, in Prospero's uh, having to construct this, you know, elaborate rom-com about it all. There is something, a couple of things come up with that because there's also, if you're going to talk about the notion of marriage and, you know, what, what God has joined, let no man rent sunder type of mentality, you're also coming up on one of the pivotal things that divides England from the rest of Europe, which is the issue of the creation of the Church of England at over divorce, and the idea that a man could say, I'm no longer married to this person, which is just interesting to work in. Like, of course, it makes sense that there would be an internalized propaganda necessary to espouse why yeah. there, that certain things are sacrosanct, unless we decide we don't need it anymore. But it's also that what I remembered was the parallels, you know, perhaps unpopular to bring this up all, all the time. But why not of the magician from their books and the the amassing, appropriation, misappropriation, uh, and hoarding of information, which might be confused with knowledge, which might be confused with wisdom, as well as the playwright and their the living many lives through their characters or like actually highlighted parts of lives that are incredibly crafted designed to illustrate a propaganda. Remember, it's only propaganda if you don't agree with it. And the notion there of Sycorax and Caliban being commentaries. Uh, or at least illustrations of an attitude towards colonization and towards non-Europeans on these islands. That Sycorax is banned from Algiers, the mother of Caliban, and goes there, and Caliban is by right the owner of the island. For what reason? Because Sycorax was the most powerful being on that island. There were other beings there, including Ariel, who's from a cloven pine, who's, and Prospero's way of keeping. I mean, that's that's, that's some shifty shit, right? Like the way of keeping someone in your service is to remind them how badly their previous master tra treated them. Like, I don't have to treat you well. I just have to treat you better than your former master did. There's simply the master's tools, uh, uh, you know, not only not, not dismantling the master's house, but very often building it again. The notion in many systems of like even having a book of magic is a form of initiation, right? Because now you do have, you have the potential to do the things that are in the book. So, you know, the idea that you shouldn't even read certain books, it's not good for you to open them or to touch them. 
it's not good for them to be free in people's hands. Yeah, there's, it's just something, the parallel that if the actor, the playwright, and the magician are all being paralleled here in Prosperum, that the reliance on the understanding of or the colonization, the, 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 the commodification of knowledge that happens with books is quite interesting. I own this thing that there even the, like the danger of books is interesting there too. And we see that with like, I mean, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, ink spilled about whether, what kind of, what kind of take this is on magic and what kind of commentary it is on power. It's, uh, it's interesting to me that the magic circle of the, of the play, of the events in the play, of the magic of Prospero is closed, uh, with returning the books that contain the means to raise the storm to also themselves be drowned, like returning the sea's power to itself in some way, or uh, denouncing that uh, that diabolic influence and power that you previously wielded. And similarly, if Prospero is, is a John Dee-like figure, or at least heavily influenced by, or at least equal yeah. parts Dee and Shakespeare and some other mythical thing that Sycorax is a Medea-like figure, which is an interesting figure in the sense that like the aid is sought, well, it's useful to us, but when she has her own will, how dare she? And similarly, the, to have Miranda uh, of the, just this, right? The name itself and its, its, its application to, to, to seeing, to looking, the, the gazer. Uh, it reminds me of the Waterhouse portrait, right? It's just that gaze at the ocean as it comes in and the shipwreck out there. God, it's just, she's, she's 15 years old. Is the Tempest like love? Is the Tempest this adolescent awakening? Is it, you know, this whole thing there is quite fascinating. And then the, the Tempest itself which we have had Prospero on the list. And it's funny because I think I just suggested Prospero as like a, and maybe some background of my brain was working. But of course, the play is called The Tempest. We're talking about Leviathan, an ocean Arisha, and like the instability of water. So like a wonderful thing of like, sometimes the threads are designed and sometimes they really are like, yeah, that one worked out, didn't it? Yeah, that's nice. I think this does open up quite, quite organically to the notion of demon magic, or as we like briefly chatted about in the bard of like why this might be something to talk about is like demonization itself to, to other something, the importance of putting yourself in the position of authority in many forms of magic, of citing the ancestral lineage, the magical lineage that links you to the one God that links you to, you know, an ordered place in creation that you, by your recitation of your prowess, your place, and your rank are in fact slaying Leviathan again in some way. You're like marduking your way through this long list of, of epithets. There's something quite interesting about the need for this, including because coming out of this uh, demonization or otherness is uh, the way that it's just thinking about it with Leviathan and the Virgin of Regla, of the demonization of the Virgin Mary in some Protestant sects as to being something that is pagan. It's, you know, the papistry of it all and its survival of ancient pagan religions very obviously, or rather a continuation and embracing of what perhaps was just fine to begin with, adding some Jesus salt to the mix. But that of Leviathan, of being perhaps, I don't always want to go back and say that like, there's there's this kind of trend that happened and we're all aware of it. It happened cyclically, of course, but it was very heavy in the, in the neo-pagan movement that if anything had ever been called a demon, that it probably was just a foreign god at some point and therefore it wasn't malevolent or that we erase the malevolence or dehorn the demons. And there's something interesting to this of like, it, it comes up very strongly with figures like Lilith of, of demoness, but not goddess historically, and now elevated to goddess. We're like, she exists in so many cultures in that area, and she's not necessarily ever a good thing. 
Now, I have my own takes on Lilith, but that's not to the point. But as a popular example of Leviathan as a, as a, as a thing, you know, like, are we harnessing the power of Leviathan? Like, what is it exactly that, what are we hoping to do with Leviathan when calling? Because he is in demon lists as well. Of what exactly are, is it just knowledge and conversation with the deep? Like, is it, is it the whale song of, of Dory finding Nemo? Is it like, I don't know. If this, yeah, no, this key theme, there's always uh, an authority being exercised in demonology and especially in demonizing and in demonization, the authority to decry, to uh, replace. And, and really, I think in, in terms of this tension of uh, old and new demonologies is this tension between, are we talking about, oh, fallen angels? Are we talking about something that has been corrupted or was meant to do a good thing and didn't or went wrong or mutated from the blueprint or, you know, or the battle plan that didn't survive contact with the enemy of, of the, of the real. Uh, are we talking about something that came to be bad or are we talking about primordial evils? Uh, and that to me is what's interesting about Leviathan. And it, it makes sense that they would turn up in, in the handbooks of demonological conjuration eventually anyway. But that's fascinating to me. The idea of what was once a thing and isn't and is, is something different and harmful now versus what was yeah because we're into like some theodicy stuff here like why does god create evil if god yeah. creates everything right uh and the various different ways that's answered and responded to and exactly we get that sense of like if we are trying to decide we're gonna uh, uh heal history and and decide that we want to look at the actual things that various ancestors of ours would have worshipped and found sacred uh, in the face of, you know, our, our various disagreements with the church's notions of how those things get talked about or not talked about. It makes sense that we would look for, what's the flip side? Exactly. What, when is this propaganda uh, that I don't, yeah, when don't I agree with it and therefore it's propaganda. And it, it's, yeah, it's a thing I, I harp on a lot about in terms of, uh, you know, looking at specific demon lists and things. And some of these, yes, are absolutely, you know, we have remnants or memories or reimaginings of, of Astarte and things like that. But we also have some pagan demons. Pagans had demons too, right? Like, and some uh, stuff is just, some things are just a murder spirit. And like, or maybe, you know, just as unfair, but like are a murder spirit and are like about murder. Whatever the name of God that you are, that you have on your lips to try and stop them murdering people you don't want them murdering. Like, that, that, yeah, that not all of these, uh, you know, these spirits in the back that the church is called bad were necessarily good either. Uh, we commit another fallacy and another way in which we allow someone else's doctrine to inform how we engage with things and what we expect to happen and the dangers we may put ourselves in. But I just say, oh, it must be the opposite of that. It should not be a maxim necessarily, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. Um, so, yeah. 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 More than one thing can be wrong. But in the spirit yeah. world, yes. Yeah. Every gangster movie. And again, like that's the, you know, uh, the comparisons of, uh, of various like spirits that are considered bad as like gangs is interesting whether you're talking about like various fairy traditions or demons or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, every gangster movie tells us there's normally like at least four different factions all trying to get their ends away or get their pound of flesh. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So there's, in all of that, I mean, you, you bring up the the complexities, right? Of like witchcraft being invented as a political crime for, in the in in the first third of the second millennium uh, common era, and like its evolution into what is now perceived of by the twentieth century of like being just a demonization of pagan ways. You know, like it was actually the excuse they used to steal property, 
But then it became more than that, as, as is what happens when you open source anything and use it as the propaganda that you used to, then it's going to fall into the common hands and people are going to do what they want with it. But the idea that the idea of what a witch is, when you refer to Circe or Kike and Medea as witches, they're not necessarily witches in the way that we would use it. The Greeks were referred to that. The paganism and witchcraft are not the same in that, that you know, we go into like the, the definitions of, of, of Jay and Bull that were proposed by Landry at that one conference that is, that is great to, to consider. Of, of the emotionality of witchcraft is different from the manipulation of all things through worship, interaction with divine forces. And Prospero is not necessarily working with demons, but he has a spiritual familiar. He decries the notions of the works of Sycorax and how she was evil. And that Caliban is half formed because of her, you know, manipulations and magic and things like that. But at the same time, this demonization, he's doing that to like, he's demonizing Sycorax and Caliban or Sycorax so that he can keep control of Caliban and keep control of Ariel. And that even in this process of what we're doing, that the, the nubbing of the demon's horns, uh, just the notion of, I'm not trying to say apostasy, but it's, you know, reading the, the lists of the litanies of lineage that give you the authority to cast the circle and that type of thing. It looks weird, except that, you know, we do the same thing in ATRs by reciting the lineage of like our own descent of force and ashe and like things like that. I don't know how, there's some, there's something I'm trying to figure out how to say with demonization here of it is not enough to modify the value center when trying to replace it, when trying to demonize it, there must, that must also fit a need. There has to be a, a reason as to why the demonization is working. It can't, it's not just, again, uh, in the same way that synchronization happens through a community's interaction with the greater forces of something exerting itself, that perhaps here demonization is something similarly so embraced through the open sourcing of this type of thing, how witchcraft evolves through a relationship with people who are afraid of witches, who are also afraid of being hunted as witches, that the, the, the procession of the statue both reifies the existence of the deity and recreates the existence of the deity at the same time that the demonization is a way of exerting authority of promoting otherness of creating order to your own benefit of course there's also the kind of more irish than the irish factor of like converting from one tradition or religion to another then there's there is often an ostracization and, and demonization of concepts and deity forms and, and, and forms from that other tradition that is not shared by people who are born into the tradition that person may have converted to. The zeal of the convert played out in approaches to spirit interactions. Yeah. I also think the, with worth mentioning under like this concept of demonization, demon magic of othering, of the kind of the, especially the modern notion of the, the psyche and the, the demons of the, of the, of the mind, the, the immaterial realm and the mind and the mental realms that like, Somehow it's, it has turned into, in a very interesting, it's evolved from Solomon bound these demons to each of us must bind them in our lifetime. And certainly if you're going off with the more popular 72 um, until post, should we just like have a dating system that's like post-Stratton Kent and pre-Stratton <laughs> Because, it, it, you know, that was the same thing. He publishes books and then people are telling me, oh, I've worked with the Shrugamar for years. And you're like, okay, sure. But uh, so that aside, just that then there's a, something interesting there of taking it to the psychological level of or trying to justify things through pseudoscience, pseudopsychology or anything like that is an interesting form of a procession of a statue. It's like trying to vote by walking through the feet of modern of concepts that you think are important for other people to believe that you're telling the truth or to believe in what you believe in. in this idea belongs in this modern uh, infrastructure 
And here's why. Oh, that's, that's, that's going to be an interesting, that's, I want to write on something on that because that's interesting, right? It is a form of care. It is a form of pilgrimage with a statue. It is a form of procession of like, I'm going to try this out. I have to, I have to carve my way through the streets of the, of the commoner to like figure out if I can, if, what will this still last there? And demonization itself is that, well, I need to try this. I need this idea. I need this thing. And I think that it, like many things, that gains a weight, like a Leviathan with its mass kind of prescribing the currents that it follows. Is it creating the currents or is it following currents made by its former creating the currents? There's something there, like the mob mentality kicks in, the collective mentality kicks in where demonization starts, othering starts, and then it's very easy, of course, to always other. The, the witch is found at the point of the out, out extended finger of Peter Gray. Like that's not the extended feeder, fe- finger of Peter Gray, but a apocalyptic <laughs> witchcraft, Peter Gray, a witch is found at the point of an outstretched finger, some paraphrasing thereof. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about like, so processing the gods or the divinized ancestors through modernity or through the now is about reminding in the social realm that this is a reality and a thing of, uh, of blessing and uh, a point of strength and stability. That demonization is like taking the statue out, is smashing statues, is taking them outside the periphery of what is acceptable. And, and that also, as a concept, is interesting to me in terms of putting it into the wilderness uh, and into the, onto the heath again. Uh, allows the heathens to get it back uh, and allows those in the night uh, and the demimond uh, uh, of that which is mm. that which is pushed out and pushed away to find another kind of underground. Was that Nietzsche that, that proposed that like, should the Norse gods be enact, you know, interacted again, that they should be quite feral and might need to be tamed again to be something that was capable of not hurting us because they had been run into the wilderness? I haven't heard that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's a Nietzsche thing, but luckily we have enough people to nerd rage at me and tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, we, Quoting is not my strength unless I've prepared it. We can check that. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's interesting, right? Yeah. What happened? Yeah. God's gone feral as a different God themselves are not removed from the tem- time space continuum. They're like, you know, Odin in the 80s is Odin in the 80s. Right, right, right. The fingerprints of now again on the wax and energies yeah. of the past. He's got yeah. much better musculature by the 2020s. Right? He's put, it's, 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 it's really worked on himself. I think the only thing I'll, I'll go up on, like, the demonization, demonization there of, like, I, there's some nascent visual thought about the surgeon's field, <laughs> Leviathan and demonization, about, <laughs> like, the sterile field of the operation and how the world is continuing outside that sterile environment, which is Leviathan by nature. And that yet, if it breaches in, it will destroy the order that has been so maintained in that way. And that the demonization in that sense is healthy for the patient of like the otherness of like, we must contain things both outside and inside in order for this surgery to become a success. So it's one of those things of like, I don't, it's, is it direct parallel? I know it's, I hate the conflation of like, just because something is magical or feels like magic does not mean it's magic, you know, like smelling pumpkin spice on a winter's day is not, I'm sorry, Insta, TikTok, which community, that doesn't mean it's magic because you feel good. Now it could be with intent, but like passive observation of your own sensorium is not necessarily magic. That should be the start of a practice, but that's something different. That's a different thing, but I don't think sufficient to magical practice. Yeah. So I'm not equating like bacterium and infection with demonization with demon necessarily. 
but in a case where like identifying the problem, containing it, allowing it to exist in its own environment, but then saying it cannot be in this space at this time might be an interesting way to, to understand even like the, again, the Mexican notion of Satanists of like, this is useful and I need this thing right here, but I don't need these other things, you know, something or Mr. Bailey, I know you're out there somewhere uh, explaining to us for high school auditions, like sometimes a recipe calls for peas, sometimes it calls for carrots. Some of you are peas, some of you are carrots today and the recipe is calling for peas. So it doesn't mean I don't like carrots. It means I might need you guys to do other things. But it's just that thing of like, selectivity might make the demon. Selectivity might make the saint. Usefulness might make the demon or the saint. But then how much further do you take that? If if something is once bad, is it always bad? If something is once good, is it always good? What are the tools we use to work with those? What are the modalities that we bring to? What are the, the boundaries we put up or don't put up? What accommodations do we make? How do we flow with things? And how do we, you know, damn those tides sometimes? <laughs> damn and damn. Yeah. Uh, so in so, that way, like if it's good for the goose, what's good for the gander? And the opposite here, what's good for the gander, the hierophant, <laughs> what changes it when it becomes the goose? Because I, I like we're talking about the second numbered trump, but by most decks, like a, a mystery of three, right? To bring in that feminine, it's numbered two, but is two who is three. Uh, and especially the rider weight famous image of the lunar crowned pomegranate, garden of pomegranate, sephiroth tree behind the, the Masonic columns the or the temple's columns of Boaz and Jacob, the little very American Masonic pronunciation there. And in that very virgin of something apparition of literally on the crescent moon with the Torah scroll in her lap, half in her cloak of her right side. So she's keeping it close to her heart. Uh, away from the opposite, Jesse, stupid idiot, stupid baby, of keeping it away from her heart, which is interesting. And then the weird equilateral cross over the chest. Who doesn't want this pseudo-Egyptian lunar crown, though? Because that's just really gorgeous. And again, that being the the benchmark of like a light in the darkness and also, you know, a a whole host of Virgin Marys and Isises and Brides of Christ and Holy Mother Churches and Junos and Shekinas. Yeah. So I was uh, talking to Jackie. Uh, uh, fabulous owner of, uh, of the Pauldron Black uh, about Tarot and about the High Priest uh, uh, the other day. And she remarked that, like, she loves it when it comes up, had all sorts of particular things to say about it as a modifier as well. You know, and, and in the nature of these things, we look at the card and we go into its mysteries a lot, but we also often try and remind ourselves at least, like, we should also understand what it is in concert with other things. And uh, she was pointing out that, like, it, it can mean many things, but it, you know, if it's coming in a sequence, uh, that she often reads it as, um, as a, a stern, to the next thing that's about to be looked at. That the like, this is something that is like the, the high priestess is reminding you is is significant. That the moon is 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 shining on this particular thing. That the, the serious moonlight, right? That the between the pillars of foundations, like, is this opened veil to wisdom that's now like being like and pay attention to this thing. She also pointed out that she enjoys how uh, the high priestess is. Uh, that uh, seems to have a shit way more together than the magician. <laughs> she, was, she was like, he's just got his tools all over the place, you know, and uh, 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 is, is, is bringing a chaos of that one, which is two, you know, the one from nothing. Whereas like, by the time he gets two, we get a sense of like, okay, there can be some, some, some order here, some regularity, a version of the rule in her own way. I mean, it's, it's also worth pointing out, like the magician represents like the, is if this fool is, the zero and the magician is the one and the fool was also at the end. A magician in many ways is the, the, the interaction of the fool in the matter of, of the trumps. And so the high priestess, like, because I come from the Catholic background, the high priestess is the church, right? Like this is the community. 
And so there's something fascinating about all that. From the individual magicians, you know, exegesis and revelations and daring do to what does this mean for transmission as well? What does this mean for uh, a wider community? What does this mean to the other? What does it mean for, uh, and what does it mean to like, again, those, that container, that, that de- delineation between the inside of the temple and the outside? What does it mean whether to write it down or to enact the faith and the wisdom and the, the, the magics that have been, you know, chaotically started? Absolutely. If we think of nothing else, establishing yourself when you can take the middle path that is between the pillar of mercy and the pillar of severity, that the middle path is the most direct to God and therefore not necessarily the easiest, <laughs> but, you know, moderation in all things. But the pillars going through the, on either side of mercy and severity, that, that when you go up through the kind of golden dawn inherited, well, in this case, directly golden dawn of Malkut Yesot Tiferet over the, over the gap to Keter and up, that you are going through the lightning path, as it were, by going through the middle. So defining the left and defining the right as part of the Masonic work prepares you to masterfully walk through the center opening that you have now defined, you know, in that kind of chumbly instance within the confines of the truth, the limits of the line, maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. I was just looking it up on the old uh, 19th century Kabbalistic tree of life stuff with generally having the high priestess as the path linking Tiferet to Keta direct, right? Gimel. Yeah. Have all that right? Gimel? Yeah. Camel. Yeah. Which then, you know, it is, that's still part of the uprightness. That is the Hathor crown that is behind her is literally what's there between her head and her, the crown are between Tiferet's and the cross on her chest, the equilateral cross is right where Tiferet would be. So it's something, so this combination of Hathor as creation cow goddess and the Virgin Mary and Mary as the new ark is something that's evoked in this for me because of having the Torah in the, in the lap and the, the ark that carries the covenant, that carries the, the commandments and carries the law. That Mary, who is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, the same way that the Shekhinah overshadows the Ark of the Covenant, same words, that Mary becomes the Ark of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. It bears it across the waters of the abysmal waters. Oh, God. Then we get into womb magic and how she's there, and the fruit of the womb that's in the background, the pomegranate, and its many seeds, and it's also being in the Garden of Eden. It's why the garden there. And then the way her dress flows out and the waters of the moon that are there. And ooh, there's a, there is a lot of beauty in the card. It's what it's often one of the ones that you see like on pillows and t-shirts and shit a lot more than like I think people want for the meaning so much as like this card is well designed. Yeah, she just she's uh even if she's offering free BJs. <laughs> Elegant, graceful. Yeah, the yeah, the watery robes at the bottom. I, I don't think I've really given enough credit to. Um really, really gorgeous. I do like the uh, the latticing. But uh, Lady Frieda Harris gets to put into the the Thoth Tarot's High Priestess as well. So I always appreciate that, not just in terms of it feeling like you're you're being drawn into something, one of something's opening outwards to you, but also the just the notion of the way lines intersecting can produce curves is just like visually very arresting for me. So from such a lunary card to perhaps consider the metal of the moon. Uh, it feels like a, a thing we can dip back to the high priestess and that she may be silvery as well. So silver, Argentina, capturing the moon in water and uh, the preferred metal of talismans in Islamic magic because gold should not be worn by men. Let me go. Job done. Job done. Yes. So yeah, Argentina, the land of silver from Argentum. 
which is also Pi, right? Proto-Indo-European uh, seems for shiny or white, uh, interestingly. And uh, yeah, I've been nerding out about heraldry again. And so I've been thinking about when silver is, when white is silver and when it's white and when silver is silver and when it's white in terms of uh, being a, a metal as opposed to a tincture technically, uh, but therefore being used to separate, not having. So heraldic rules say you shouldn't have colors or tinctures touching other tinctures or on top of them. Touching is okay. Not touching. Uh, but if you want to have a blue lion on a red field, uh, then it needs uh, some uh, some metals in between that, some white or some yellow or gold or silver. And various countries disagree about the place of, of black lighting and things like that, or look the other way for it. But yeah, immediately thinking about white as the as the as a, as a luminous metal, we think about gold as the, the solar metal, which is like so connected to light, obviously, for the daytime. But this idea of uh, of another light metal, not in the sense of how much it weighs, but in the sense of its yeah, its luminousness. Yeah, I think. Silver is one of those things that's it's hard to believe we haven't discussed it before. And it's both so there's so much lore and also it's like it can be summarized fairly succinctly, right? It's interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, we do primarily associate it with the moon by this point in like the collective magical things. It it, it is associated with several other planets as well. And it's a good talismanic metal just because of its durability, whereas gold is good for plating, but not necessarily for maintaining an image. The notion of silver tarnishing by in, in the presence of sulfur and its fumes. And uh, this, of course, using like an early detection warning for demonic presence gives rise to things like the mercury dye, more silver rings or silver against werewolves and, and uh, vampires who used to be the same thing, as is my understanding. But the uncanny ability of silver to capture the moon's rays and to literally draw down the moon in that way. I don't know if literally is the right word there, figuratively draw down the moon. I would love to see it literally drawn down though too. But uh, it's funny because I've heard so many people use the same folk magic of, oh no, a silver coin in a bowl of water under the moon's rays and then cover it before dawn. And then some people expose it to the sun again, but it is always a silver coin as highly quality as you can get it. And if nothing else, you need the water, you use a dime because it's silver colored. But What's interesting about that is every single person who tells me it acts like it's some big secret that only they or their specific folk magic know about. And it's happened like six or seven times. And I love that that's the guarded, protected knowledge. of like, that's how we make lunar water. And I always remember that. I was, Thank you so much for sharing that. Because like, I'm fascinated that it's, I'm always like, maybe something's different. Nope, it's still the same thing. But a bunch of silver. It's so like, because the things, you know, sometimes you guard secrets because they're super complicated. But sometimes you guard things because they're really simple. Like, and maybe there's something to that, like letting you in on the thing and, and it's considered a little more like, you know, a trade secret, uh, precisely because it's so uh, practical <laughs> as well. Not just simple, but like practical. It was interesting to know in looking at, uh, some of the modern uses of silver, uh, just to bounce back and forward, uh, about the links again, like, the, like all of the, like you, you put it really well, like there's so much silver more, but it's also like, funnily enough, pretty neatly like all organized in terms of like goes back to the moon, goes back to light, goes back to water in some way. And so thinking about those themes was uh, uh, was informing my, my confirmation biases in terms of just noting <laughs> like, uh, silver being used in solar panels as well as like water, uh, water filtration. It's a color in stained glass. Uh, in terms of its what is what turn as well as the silver compounds in in uh, X-ray film and like uh, and some photographic film, uh, you know, as well as like obviously like specialized mirrors as well as window coatings uh, as well, and then like 
you know, it's a conductor and it, it catalyzes chemical reactions and things. Uh, so there's a sense. Yeah. So that's a little different as well. That's like the tides of the changeability, the dynamism of, of lunary things there, the, the, the ritual nature of them, uh, uh, kind of feels interesting in those lights. And also as a, as a balm, the moon, not just as the maddening thing, but the still of the night that holds us. I think it's Carl Sandberg, a friend for the, the lonely to talk to. There's that, that, that balm and that soothing nature in terms of, uh, what was I looking into? Like bandages and dressings and catheters and other medical equipment also, uh, being, having like this disinfectant, uh, quality against like microbiocides and stuff. Uh, also have like silver nitrate and other silver compounds in them. Well, I always remember that. Oh God. It was listed on several websites, including Adam McLean's back in the day of planetary metals that occur naturally in plants. So, you know, there's a ton of lead. There's a, a great amount of tin, iron as well. Gold none occur, doesn't occur naturally in any plant. Lots of copper and even a few mercury. I think like not 10, but not five. Like this, I'm going off a of visual memory here. But I remember specifically that it's a type of tomato and a type of oak, I think red oak that contain silver. And I always think about kind of like the tomatoes, the fruit, but like it's also a nightshade and like the weird, because then it gets you like the fruit is the Venusian and like the, the nightshade is the Saturn. And it was like, but somehow that's the one that contains silver. And like, you know, the way your brain tries to wrap it around the actual physical exemplar in nature as like, well, what does this mean? Or it's like, there's no way people necessarily knew these plants unless it was large amounts. But like that you get a type of tomato and a type of red oak both have one part per million of silver. And then even the notion there, like the the oak and its relationship as a solar and Jupiterian plant, a a tree of truth and rulership and nobility, but then silver is still found there too. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You do see silver setting up for a lot of Jupiterian stuff. And uh, it's also, it seems in some of the, and uh, yeah, again, I have to defer to notes from Adley's classes, uh, Adley Nichols uh, of uh, much medieval magic study, including uh, stuff on the Illusionarium. Uh, necromantia. Um, I'd have to check with him, but yeah, we were, we were talking about, you see the three, four metals, like gold, silver, maybe in some case, tin, usually maybe copper being prescribed for all of the planetary pentacles or sigils that you might make, that they are noble metals that can carry all of the, uh, the different planetary virtues and, uh, markings of the spirits. I think also with silver, the, I mean, I'm going to be real cheesy. Uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes. Or steel for humans, silver for monsters from Witcher. Mm-hmm. He carries two blades with him. Uh, one is for humans, which is steel, and the other monsters die by silver's hand. Again, the and any mythical lore around around blades that are made of silver. The silver uh, needs to be sharpened quite a bit, and it loses its edge. Right, it's not as true as some other metals. But it does have a lot of lore of like killing something with silver is there, like, like we talked, but so uh, keep it there and to return I, it to the moon's realm of the dead. Yeah, exactly. As the, if the moon is the mediator, the, the mediatrix between our realm and, you know, the sublunary and everything above it, then, you know, there's an interesting like the moon as the true Mercury of heaven in the sense of like the true portal through which the womb, through which all stars are born, through which all powers are born. And therefore, yeah. Like if you're doing the notions of different ways to capture stellar elections that sometimes, uh, you know, when a body goes combust, the sun, it's not necessarily good. You know, the, when it is and with the moon, if the stars started to be occluded by the moon, then now the moon's light itself is amplifying the star's qualities. And so there's the and way. 
yeah, the moon isn't just the queen of the stars. She's the key of the stars as well. Like the, yeah. the meat by which we unlock that blessing. And then you get into the stellar magics of like capturing lunar water or boiling lunar water and then capturing it there. You know, capturing it with the silver or capturing it by flame. Um, sometimes both under when the moon is broadcasting certain lights that you need to steal the reflection. That's how things are taken. And that even if by the nature of it, that the moon, the moonlight touching the silver under the water does steal the moon's reflection. That's what it is. So some people will say multiple coins are great. Some say only one is necessary. The ball and only one is preferred because you don't want the moon to be pulled down from the sky completely. <laughs> well, to be denied us, right? Again, the, the moon. It's still like a rippling circle, but it is a, a complete thing. Yeah. I, I've always, you know, come across the idea of the moon has to be like, uh, fully in the bowl. And, and the mode of, uh, the, uh, just, uh, the full moon notion versus a, a partial moon or, a, or certainly not a new moon's reflection is not something we need to capture. There's no light to be caught. It's interesting how quickly it, you mean you, again, silver goes quickly, even though it's so important. I also think there's the notion you're thinking in falsely saying that the moon is the mercury of the heavens in that way too, as being the, the pivot point or the entrance point that like even quicksilver is named for silver and it's just the silver that moves, which is, you know, as the agent that helps produce gold is fascinating. So if we look at the quicksilver, the lunar rays, the plasm, the ectoplasm, the spooge of the moon, mm-hmm. lunar, yeah. lunar, lunar moisture, I mean, which, of, uh, and there is things to that, right? That the dew that, that first experience that comes out under a full moon um, and then is exposed to the light of the, of the dawning sun is like, that's some potent dew. Um, yeah. I like some of, of snails and the trails they leave. Uh, yeah, in the, in the moonlight there. Yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously, you know, we're going with this is the, to, to, to talk about that famous Mexican curse word of alo, aloe vera, which for those that have not seen it, there is a very funny meme that was going around that was like aloe vera or whatever Mexicans say when they get angry, which is... You know, if you know, you know, but uh, stop dicking around. Uh, but aloe vera as uh, as our herb for the day. Yeah, there's something in general about succulents for me. And I don't think it's just like, oh, I know they're full of water. There may be something about some of them being in deserts, but also in more like rainforests as well. There's something that feels lunary to me about those, well, they evoke those conditions, but the like high moisture areas and so like, I don't know. There's something lunary about deserts as well. Uh, like for me, like thinking about, I don't know, maybe thinking about like the surface of the surface. And so this notion of like this, not notion, the image of the, this spiky thing full of, uh, you know, soothing goo feels pretty lunary in general. Also that it's, it's kind of vaguely crown shaped, right? Which seems to be a, a recurring thing again, the corona of the moon, as well as it's like its horns. Yeah. I mean, it has a, it, it's that, Extending out from the rosette, right? So like opposite pairs going out from right from where it hits the ground. There's something there. I will say that one of the most frustrating things in trying to gather lore on this is to have to go through the first 40 pages of Google, where unfortunately, so many people conflate aloes wood with aloe vera to the point of sheer ridiculousness and saying that the Bible probably refers to different, this specific species of aloe vera there, you're like, I hate that this is, the misinformation is just being passed around like this. We have no, we have no hard, fast way of knowing what was discussed in scripture, but we can look at the fact that all over the Levant and the Middle East, aloe's wood or oud is incredibly important as a perfume and an aromatic. And 
to uh, aloe vera and its relatives, close relatives, do not have any specific scent. They have a goo and a very slight watery scent that is reminiscent of bad 90s rain incense. We don't have one of these instances here where someone has a name for a plant and they come across something that looks a bit like it and calls it the same or calls it a similar thing or calls it like red aloe. The red gets forgotten, so they both get called aloe for some reason because they look kind of similar. It's literally a linguistic thing, right? It's knowing the name of the thing but not knowing what the name refers to. Like lignum aloes like is, yeah. is, 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 is a tree, isn't it? Specifically, the, and, and the, the aloes woods perfume is, is you, you know this better than I do. There's, there's a whole ecology to it, right? It's based off the way that the wood is transformed by some kind of organism that renders it particularly sweet. Yes. Oh, good. I'm not, I wasn't just in a fever dream there when I was like, is that, isn't that how it works? But it's a very specific wood, right? As opposed to a so- yeah, aquilaria. It's, it's an evergreen. And so it's, it's a very, it's a, it's more of a huge ass industry around it. And there are plants that smell like it or it's mixed with it. But the Aquilaria tree is uh, susceptible to natural fungal attacks. And then there is one that they do that is a forced fungal attack. And so there's two different qualities of aloes wood or agar wood from that. And like the Chiara is the highest quality, right? So there's the different colors of green, iron, purple, black. That's aloes wood specifically. And I, that's just because it's, I am I'm a big Oud fan. I burn a lot of Oud. I wear a lot of Oud. I, and I try and find more and more places that are hopefully getting it ethically. And it's really hard to know unless you gather it yourself. But I do love the smell of oud. I am also a big fan of aloe vera. Um, (laughs) Aloe vera, as far as the usage that I know, because I I can talk specifically to its folk uses in Mexico, supplantation of the cult of the maguey for the aloe vera in Mexico. So again, we're talking about demonization. So you had to demonize the maguey plant because the maguey has a deity associated with it. So they tried one way to, to kind of wrap that up by making that plant into the Virgen de los Remedios, which is a small statue that was hiding in on the night of the sadness of the night of the conquest. There's a Virgin Mary associated with the maguey plant. So they tried to do it the divine route. Then they also have to demonize it because the maguey plant is also where purque and tequila come from. And it's the clothes were made from its fibers and it's a deity of many things. So it's also then kind of not demonized necessarily. It's divin- It's made into a virgin. But then we kind of got to replace that plant with something else. In the same way that native plants were often renamed for bad things. And then the emphasis on the Virgin Mary's plants came in as the replacements. So you have people that were using bitter plants, the different Artemisias and things like this that were native that then are being told to use rue, bruda, by the Spanish, or uh, uh, specifically things like yaucli and then these aromatic plants that then get, you have to use rosemary. And that's imported from Spain. And now it grows here and it's fine. But the use of foreign plants to replace the medicine cults of specific plants. And aloe vera replaces the maguey plant, as far as we can tell. And so in curanderismo, especially along the borderlands, because aloe vera retains its moisture for so damn long, like you cannot water it and it will just live for years, that hanging a plant or even having a plant in a pot is good luck, but hanging a plant upside down on the, the mesa of, of a curandera is good on the working surface, oftentimes on the right to draw in good spirits or on the left in order to keep negative ones at bay 
or in the center to honor God and to make sure that your life is always refreshed or to divide a plant into thirds and put them at the corners of the things. And they're changed at various feast days. There's different local lore as to when you change the aloes. But the string is washed, the aloe vera might be washed or grown in a little bit of holy water. And the aloe vera invokes this kind of constant refreshment because there's this, always this thing of like, you can tell when someone comes from a certain background because they go, what does the al- water on the altar represent? And you're like, wetness. Like, and the aloe vera is a plant that is associated with wetness. I would say that it's often you know, put under a lunary or a Venusian with a subcategory of that kind of when Venus fell in love with Mars thing because aloe vera has the, sh- the little tiny spikes, but they don't actually hurt. And it's used to satiate burning qualities of what we would normally associate with plants and stings and martial effect. So it's lunary Venusian in that way, because it's also in the lily family and, and the lilies are often given to Venus. But the use of aloe in this refreshing way, this eternal ability to refresh, reminds me very much of the way that certain succulents are used in Afro-Caribbean and Afro-Diasporic practices, the kind of snail juice-like quality that you're talking about, the slimes of creation, the waters of the womb, the breaking off of an aloe leaf and using it to recite a rosary, where you push your nail into the bit and like take off chunks of aloe to when you're making the things, the common way in Buranarismo, because you're always praying, but to do like how many, and keeping the aloe sheets that are left and putting that with the saint and then using the medicine of what you followed out into there. But aloe rosaries were common and then rubbing the aloe over you, rubbing a saint statue with aloe and then rinsing it with holy water um, and using that as a bath for someone. Aloe is a very beautiful, simple plant. It is used to relieve constipation. It does cause your fluids to move. If you take too much of it, it will cause extended diarrhea, which is not good. And generally, like old fight, remember, it's a three and a 10 thing. That's a common rule. Don't use it for over 10 days if you're applying it to yourself because it will give you permanent, not permanent, it will, it will, it will have an imbalance that is really hard to reverse and over three days for children. But other than that, aloe is really pretty, right? It's a very common houseplant because it's hard to kill. Something of the lunary eternal, right? The silvery in the night that might come and go, but represents. Yeah. an ongoing cycle that it's balanced between the lands of the living and the dead and therefore have balance in the yeah uh, i like that it's uh specific yeah i like to say it's uh, uh has that venusian quality of balancing martial problems like yeah venus substance to martial problems uh accelerates healing process for some burns right for like first and yeah. second degree um, it's funny they're like even sunburns right even sunburns are martial in their nature, in their affect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though they come from the sun. And so, yeah, that, that, it's like the luminaries find their way into a variety of antipathies and sympathies. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The effect is still uh, a, a martial one, one of uh, redness, of ration, sensitivity, of itching, of, yeah, of discomfort. Yeah. You find the use of it apparently uh, by the, from, you know, we have records of the Asian Greeks and, and Romans using it to beat wounds specifically as well, apparently. I mean, beating is a lovely thing because it's 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 soft. The spikes themselves aren't dangerous in, in most cases. I, you know, the difference between the giant thick one and the smaller thin ones and how that all goes. I don't know. I find it a very friendly plant. I find it a plant that, you know, is so useful that it often finds its way into lists of usefulness for which it is not necessarily. <laughs> it just feels like a doctoring plant. It is high in antioxidants as most green things are. But I think just the notion of its prominence as like an herbal remedy, because everybody gets burnt at some point and it truly does have a good effect on burns. 
So it seems like it's one of the things that like even people that don't believe in herbal medicine believe that there is something in the aloe plant that is on a chemical level that, that transmits its agency to the point where like if Colt's foot was like used as a symbol for the herbal apothecary, the like aloe vera becomes so associated with herbal medicine at a certain point. It's just like everybody has an aloe plant in their house at some point in their lives. It's just wonderfully universal. I also like that it's in a lot, you know, it's, it's a lovely garnish in margaritas or salsas or <laughs> very silly side of it, I guess. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not a million miles away. You could disguise it in a bunch of artichoke and no one would make the artichoke up. It would be delicious. It's Italian-American fodder. Do you know of like botanical disagreement or revision around like the actual category uh, aloe vera? I mean, aloe vera is, I mean, vera is the species name. It just happens to have so many variants past that. And aloe itself is the family because, right? So plant names, to the, what we usually refer to as the first name of the plant is the genus. It's actually family name first. It's like Chinese naming rules, right? So, and that's what's capitalized. Whereas I, it's my point of nerd rage. If you are talking about plants, please don't capitalize the second letter unless it is a proper place name, which is the acceptable thing like Chinensis or like Salix Babylonica because Babylon is a capital, you know, it's a proper place, but it still irks me to see it, but it's, it should be a uh, lowercase and, and most time there is a growing trend to lowercase all species names because it's just clearer, right? To know what is the species, what is the, jo- the, the genus and go from there. But like, it's mainly, the only thing I see really is that like, the one that is called chinensis, aloe vera chinensis, is the non-edible one. And it looks a lot like barbadensis. But that's the main thing is that either chinensis is not edible. And also, I should research this real quick while you talk. If chinensis is actually accurate, because what's hard is chinensis as a plant name isn't always meaning from China, but it definitely sounds like they're trying to blame everything on the Chinese. Some, uh, some creeping orientalism in the philology. Yeah. Yeah, it's little barbs. Um, I'm looking at pictures of it. It's little barbs are cute. Yeah, it does mean Chinese. And I don't know how many of the plants that are called chinensis actually. Some are, but it's also a strange thing. Why do things that don't aren't from China have the word chinensis after it? And especially toxic things. America, explain. Uh, the only one I can find is for similar ones from California, where a lot of plants from Mexico and California have chinensis after the name because the botanist was studying other plants at the time from China. And just conflate them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we all do that a little bit, right? Oh, I'm looking at ravens at the moment. That that reminds me of ravens. Uh, <laughs> oh well. So so we've considered the uh, the moon goo. We've considered kind of the horns of the moon a little bit. The uh, the ladies who wear its crown. The notion of its crown as corona, and both like embodiment and container. The skin of Leviathan, again, the impressively large organ of the, of the human body, the skin, right? Nectar and container uh, that will feed the faithful uh, by the victory over its chaos. Uh, we've thought about changing waters, uh, stability through dynamic response and in voting with our feet to stabilize us and to find community and support that and to continue to build it together rather than just expect to join it. Talked about the demonization of what it means to, to be not of community uh, or to be dangerous to it or to bring the diabolical influences into it and out of it. Uh, yeah, what's served inside and outside the village uh, and on the heath. And, and I've had a lovely time doing it, frankly. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we talked about Fortuna Minor as well. And Uros. And uh, the shifting, crunchy and smooth and the, uh, the, the warning bell that wakes you up uh, before you do something daft or dafter. 
you know, and this whole thing is inspired by everything that Regla Yamaya in this way. And I, if anybody, like, if you Google Hemisphere Institute and carry, uh, like, this is a, it's an amazing article. I'll find a way to, to propagate the link to it somewhere. Maybe on through the Facebook page and stuff. I'll tweet it. But like this idea of in this, in the Virgin herself and the way that she's treated, it is much like how magicians have come to use everything, right? That, that I don't know a single person that unless you're like, you're from a very rich family and you're maintaining your power through magical traditions taught to you by like the Illuminati because of, you know, aliens, Anunnaki and stuff that most people come from at some point in their life feeling powerless and trying to gain power back or magic is about altering the fate of the world to, to at least include you in a way that you are happy about um, or include your clients in a way that they are happy about. So this passage of originally intended as a symbol of European hegemony, the image of the black virgin was reappropriated by slave Africans and the descendants as a symbol of Afro-Cuban religious identity. Like other quote, traveling virgins, Regna's journeys have rendered her multivocal, polyvalent, and relevant to an increasingly globalized world and the people who must continue to navigate and make sense of it. I really like this concept of today on, on you know, right after voting day here in, in, in upstate, and like the, what this is, but the voting with the feet is such a wonderful ternarian phrase that is, is worth coming back to. It implies an, an uh, an action in the world that implies an embodied choice to to do with the feet what the mouth just talks about mm-hmm. and that there's something quite beautiful about that so a little more theoretical today i hope everybody's still with us We're, hopefully we edit ourselves to make it be a little bit more flowy but thank you al that was that was a lovely kind of re-entry and a little bit weirder episode than usual but also just as freaking long Isn't sea change like that? I know it's a thing in Tempest, but yeah. it's definitely uh, full fathom five. Thy father lies of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that wear his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but to suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Yeah. May the warnings come to us all that we can pay attention and at least have some good come out of it. Cheers, everyone. Take care.